peachy. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 335. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 979er in the Renaissance Harbor Place Hotel in Baltimore, Maryland. Today's show is recorded on the 9th of August, 2018. Today's episode, aviation news, more news, more news about aviation, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, handling the big jets. So, get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 335 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast where, guess what? We talk about aviation and also answer your fantastic feedback. And helping me to do that is doctor? from our lakeside studio doctor? in South Carolina, doctor? Doctor. the doctor, doctor? skydiver, doctor? marathon runner, doctor? strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, and so much more. Dr. Steph. Hello, Captain Jeff. Good to see you this afternoon and looking forward to a definitely aviation filled show today. No extraneous information and ideas whatsoever. What? We can't talk about anything else? Nope. Just aviation today. Uh, And really looking forward to it. That's not true. (laughs) And also joining us from a studio in England across the pond, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Great to be back on the show again. Really looking forward to it. Uh, we talking about aeroplanes. I better get my textbooks out. I'm so used to talking about everything else, but... I have a feeling you have enough personal experience in airplanes that you can talk about it without referring to textbooks. Ah, We're going to find out, there is a great book to come, though. We'll okay. hear all about it. Can't wait to hear about it. But in the meantime, let's introduce, from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon, scotch, vodka connoisseur, motorcycle riding pontoon boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, guys. Great to be back and uh, looking forward to this exquisitely dynamic aviation show today and uh, by the way nick i went ahead and i have an aviation textbook right Ooh, here look big at that. old one for jeppetson sanderson instrument commercial manual so if we have any questions i have the ability to look them up that's awesome i've got my oh, wow. private pilot one right here too oh that's Ooh, see we've got it all bases a covered previous now. dog of mine chewed the back cover but it's still <laughs> good <laughs> 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 we call that dog eared, don't we? Yeah, actually, you know what? I think it was on loan from my CFI at the time. And I said, <laughs> I sent him a picture. I was like, uh, he said, mm, you know what? This you, can, you can have that one. <laughs> so, so, when, so when Steph says that her dog ate her homework, she's not kidding. 
I'm not real. kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's Steph, is yours as heavy as mine is? My God, this thing, pro- I could do curls is, with it. Yeah, I mean, for just the private pilot information, there's a lot of pages here. I have it's probably, a, that one's probably much larger than this one, to be honest, though. It's this one that. has, let's see if I can get to the back of it here real quick. It has, come on, give me a Aren't page. Aren't you glad you no, tuned in today's show? Numbers. This is fascinating. Yeah, makes great radio. Oh, these they're, are all the They're playing with that's big, giant books right now. That's why, that's why the, the pages are still in here. It has all the quiz answers and questions. So, and they're not filled out. So, obviously, I never did my homework. Uh oh. What, well, where's your book, Jeff? I, yeah, I was looking around. He said I don't, that relevant experience that he was talking to you about earlier. I don't, yeah. He could, he could write the book at this point. I, uh, well, the couple of books I did have in my room, they're underneath my laptop, you know, elevating it a bit. I do have a brochure, though. Um, it's the, uh, a la carte dine-in menu for room service Ooh. here in my hotel studio. It's oh, very the, bright. The exposure is just awful. <laughs> huh. Okay. Well, forget it. Okay. It's an audio show anyway, right? So let's see. How is everybody doing? Good. Good. Well, tell us, since you're the Excellent. first one that uh, made any noise out of that question. Um, Liz. No, not Liz. <laughs> Steph. Liz. <laughs> Liz in my mind. Hi, Liz. <laughs> Liz is our producer, by the way. Hello. She's part of our crew. How you doing out there, Liz? Um, Hopefully. Anyway, I'm sorry. Doing yeah, she's, uh, she's uh, on a little uh, holiday uh, in a beautiful place, from what mm-hmm. we can tell. And I'm sure that he, she's enjoying her swimming and her drinking. It seems like that's pretty much what she does <laughs> up there, which sounds what, great. What else are you supposed to do? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, what I meant to say is, Steph, how yes. have you been? I have been very well. Thank you very much. Good days um, at work? Uh, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> yeah, no, just the usual uh, frustrations of just dealing with the public and people. Mm. So. But beyond that, everything's really been good. Um, All right. Any flying or anything? No, I was just trying to think. That's I haven't done a lot of that recently. I need to get my butt back in the air. So yes, you do. Hopefully, yeah. Next time we meet or the time after that, I'll have some stories of flying. All right. Any uh, APG meetups or anything for you? No, I'm nope. trying to think. Is that a trick question? I, I no, don't think so. I don't Since think so. Last time. Okay. <laughs> I don't know no, of none, any. None, none that I'm aware of. <laughs> Okay, good, good. Since the last time we talked, no, no, just okay. some, uh, you know, a really quiet, relaxing uh, weekend last weekend and just caught up on some uh, sleep and rest and got some stuff done around the house. And the weather here, actually, speaking of flying, has not been real great for flying, especially for us general general aviation f- types, if I could talk. Um, <laughs> having a hard time with words today. <laughs> um, that's that's my it, existence. <laughs> yeah. Glad to know I'm not alone. But in yeah, in the afternoon we've had a lot of you know just the typical in the south southern afternoon afternoon thunderstorms. Um, some really really crazy thunderstorms last night happened just north of Charlotte. We had some really uh, heavy uh, strong winds, microbursts, and straight line winds. Uh, I think the airport recorded gusts of 41 miles an hour, but just north of that it was closer to 50, and there were some reports of even 100 miles an hour. So pretty crazy stuff out there. Nothing here at my place, so we're all good. But yeah, some pretty intense thunderstorms. I think we're supposed to be in the clear for the next couple of days in terms of convective activity, though. 
Apparently, Atlanta was affected by some strong storms last night. Apparently, it was uh, kind of a mess, uh, mm-hmm. messed up the schedule for Acme Airlines and probably others. Um, speaking of Acme Airlines, Dana, have you, uh, how have you been to? Oh, you want this to be a show about uh, <laughs> about the airline pilot guy or me? Because <laughs> I've got a lot of stuff that's happened in the past week. Okay, well, tell us about it. Well, uh, la- my last trip, not this trip that I just came back from the last ship, uh, thank God we have this exemption by the FAA at ACME. It's called the 549 exemption for new captains, and that is if you're a newly qualified captain, we are at high minimums. In other words, we have to add 100 feet to uh, our minimums. Uh, so if, let's say, decision altitude is uh, 100 feet, uh, excuse me, 200 feet, you have to add another 100 feet because I'm under 100 hours in the aircraft, or you have to add a half mile to visibility in order to be able to shoot an approach. Well, fortunately, we have this exemption, which uh, last week, the weather in Atlanta was miserably low, heavy rain. Uh, I haven't turned the windshield wipers on, on the uh, Mad Dog in a very long time, and I had to turn them on max to be able to see anything. So with this exemption, it allows me to fly the aircraft a couple down two minimums, uh, publish minimums or and or do a cat two auto land so uh, if we were not able to do that then we would have not on last thursday which I haven't been on the show since um last thursday would not have been able to uh, get into atlanta because it was right down two minimums so that was my last trip uh of course you guys heard about the trip before that the columbia debacle so of course the aviation gods for the first six months as you're a captain um have a tendency of throwing a lot of challenging things at you um so this last trip i just came off of a three-day was no exception uh we landed in raleigh and raleigh has a lot of uh, taxiway closures they told me to follow the uh acme uh cj 700, it was a 700, I was going to say it was a 900, but it was 700. And uh, so I followed them, and that took me past where I could access the part of the ramp that um, I could taxi the airplane into gate number C1. And that was uh, AT Sierra. Well, <laughs> landing right behind us was an American Airlines uh, Airbus product there, Captain Nick. Airbus product that, uh, con- that decided to go ahead and dump all its hydraulics right as it exited the runway Oops. blocked all the taxiways and there was only one available taxiway oh, what so it took, a shame yeah oh, it took him uh, about Dana. 25 yeah. minutes oh. to come out there and tow the aircraft out of the way oh so really i'm the sure gate. they could have taken longer if they wanted are they still <laughs> well, are they still um i haven't been to raleigh durham in a long time are they still renovating that terminal one the old terminal um, i think they, they are re- that whole side that? of the airport is pretty much shut down shut down so, yeah yeah Okay. Um, so the newer side is where they're doing the construction and it's right in front of the uh, gates we need to get into. So yeah, that's how that trip started. Then, uh, got a nice reroute. Now I'm very jealous of captain Jeff at this very moment because I was supposed to have an incredibly nice layover in Baltimore. I almost reached out to Hillel. Um, I'm glad I didn't because I was going to my favorite Italian restaurant and I was flying with a fellow Bostonian. So, well, he had an appreciation for Italian. So we had all these great plans to go get uh, Italian uh, food at La Scala in Baltimore. And lo and behold, guess what? We get rerouted and get rerouted in mini and they for 50, for 10 minutes. So we were supposed to leave at 9 a.m. They decided to give us a flight that leaves at 850 a.m. Uh, and I called uh, scheduling and said, hey, wh- why? I mean, 10 minutes, really? 
So they had ended up adding an entire extra leg to us while our flight over to Pittsburgh was going to be a nice flight until uh, just about top of climb, get a f- uh, call from the flight tents in the back. Hi, this is blah, blah, blah. We're in the back, and I've got a gentleman that has shortness of breath and uh, chest pain, tightness of chest. I was, uh, uh-oh. All right, so here we go. We've got already my first medical emergency. So, of course, yeah. one of my pot, one of my, one of my briefings, uh, in, briefing items specifically, actually, is always, if you have a medical emergency, try to get that form to me as quickly as possible so I can get the, uh, the ball rolling, especially on most of our flights, are fairly short. Uh, we were going to Pittsburgh, so it was about an hour and uh, 20, I think it was an hour and 28-minute block time uh, once we were born. So got the medical form and went through all the procedures. Uh, and what I'm going to do is instead of me going into all specific details here, uh, what I'm going to do is try to do a crew log. So those folks that listen to the uh, um, the, do the Patreon. We'll get the full briefing on what exactly happened. But so some summarize it up. It uh, ended up okay. I th- we think he may have actually had a, a, a an event. We had to uh, give him some uh, medication per the uh, folks down on the ground, and we land in Pittsburgh, and everything else is normal from there. Then with our reroute, we got a different hotel in uh, in not our normal hotel in um, Mini. And we were basically in the slums, <laughs> not a very safe area outside. And we get to the hotel. It's a very nice hotel inside. And we we're there about quarter past two in the afternoon. And they refused to check us in until three o'clock. We had been up since before four in the morning. So, you know, I had getting the company involved. And uh, amazingly enough, about 15 minutes prior to three, to 2.45, they finally came up with two rooms for us. And uh, anyways, we rescheduled the Vienna in the morning because we were deadheading instead of uh, flying the aircraft out of Mini back to Atlanta. And, well, lo and behold, um, we go downstairs waiting for the van. And guess what? No van. No van. <laughs> How <laughs> no did I van. guess? How did no. I guess? <laughs> so I called crew, uh, uh, crew tracking yet again. And uh, got the same lady, and she said, oh, my, you have had one hellacious. I said, yeah, all over 10 minutes, Sonia. So uh, that was interesting. And then the last thing I'm going to talk, I mean, we did make the flight. Uh, and, of course, uh, again, I'll, I'll um, expand upon it on the uh, crew log. And then the last thing is I had a very, uh, on my last day, I had a very uh, nice interaction. Um, I had received a letter from ACME Chief Pilot's Office that I need to go see them regarding uh, special thing they had for me, and I have a history with the specific chief pilot uh, for the past uh, twenty. Well, is it yeah, close to twenty years, um, eighteen, seventeen, seventeen years, going all the way back to my instructing days, and he's now chief pilot. And the uh, I specifically wanted to see him because uh, I got uh, presented my certificate of command, and also my engraved wings. So they uh, engraved my wings and, and also um, put my name in the date of um, becoming a captain for the first time. So it was really neat. So that's, uh, that's my life in a nutshell, but I log recorded and get everybody up to date on all the specific details involved with everything that I went through the last, uh, especially this last trip. All right. Wow. Uh Quite a lot to talk about. That's that's fantastic, and congratulations on your command certificate. 
Speaking yeah. of um, chief pilots, for most of my career, which is coming up on you know, getting close to 30 years now at Acme, uh, most of the time I had no idea who the chief pilot was because, you know, just we don't really interact that much with, <laughs> with our supervisors and this type of you job. You not to anyway, right? Yeah, you don't, you don't really want to. Um, but, uh, the, I remember it was several years back, um, probably more than 10 that, uh, I, I heard this name and I recognized the name because he was sitting, uh, with me in the back row of my initial training at Acme airlines. Uh, I think he's like three numbers junior to me and he was the Atlanta chief pilot. And I thought, Oh, I, I know who that is. <laughs> he was in my class, really nice guy. And uh, then he moved on up through the chain, the management chain. And for the last several years, he's been the, I think they call it the assistant VP of uh, uh, flight operations, just under our uh, top guy, Dana, who just sent out a letter saying that he was going to be stepping down. And yes. my, my friend and fellow classmate in my initial training at ACME is now going to take over as the senior VP of flight operations at Acme Airlines. So, wow. And, and I have something unique that certificate is signed by both uh, who you're talking about and mm-hmm. the person that's leaving. So that's probably one of the last, uh, not the last, but it'll be among the last uh, uh, certificates ever signed by those two guys. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. All that's right. a really nice gesture. Actually getting all that stuff. We didn't get anything like that. I don't remember no. getting one of those certificates. Like, can you go fly the airplane now? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. run away for a minute while Nick goes ahead and, and, and says things, but I'll come back. I'm gonna show the engraving and then I'll uh, blot out the not blot out, but I'll I'll black out the him. area. I'll block out the area that is uh act, take a is, sharpie is, to it. Just don't sharpie. It and, and to identify it, but I'll you know, for those those that watch the show, I'll go ahead and, and then if you YouTube it too, you can see what the certificate you know, they're gonna say, Well, that like. was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right well, you do that. Nick, you're on, man. Yes, what have you been up to, sir? Well, uh nothing really except study, study and more study. I'm trying to you know, do my best to get back into uh, the swing of things with uh, a simulator tomorrow and the next day. So that will um, kind of bring me uh, up to recency with uh, landings and simulators. And then uh, I'm going to get a training trip with a with a, uh, a training captain and then a uh, another trip, which will be uh, an assessment of competency. And assuming all that goes smoothly, I will be um, back into the seat and, uh, you know, flying the line as normal. That won't probably happen till middle of next month since uh, I've got time off at the uh, end of this month. And, uh, oh, look, I'm back in quadruplet. <laughs> it's very Isn't scary. that marvelous? You do that <laughs> like, I just want to see how many times I can see myself. Ah, there you go. In well, picture. I don't know how often picture you'll see yourself. Myself, of course, is uh, something different. Um, yeah, so all that's happening. Uh, it'll all occur. Uh, but the only um, sort of hiccup is, having got through one series of medical problems, I do have to go back uh, for an eye exam because... Uh, they spotted something a little bit dubious uh, in one of my eyes in my last uh, checkup. They said, come back in four months. I've got to go back and do that uh, in a week, and uh, we'll just see what uh, 
that might if it has any ramifications or not. So my fingers are crossed for that. My life at the moment seems to be just one medical uh, hiccup after another. But like I said, I've only got a year to go uh, as of next month. Uh, one year to go. And who's so, counting? Um, yeah, but who's counting? <laughs> not Nick. No, no, Definitely no. Definitely not Nick. Going to pull How up the guys? app. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got my app here. Oh, oh. so happy in a minute. <laughs> Give me a moment. You guys talk amongst yourselves. I'm surprised you just didn't know that number off the top of your head. I thought you woke up in the morning and checked it every day. Well, after to... after nearly six months without actually going to work, I wasn't it's, actually it's getting terribly concerned about it. <laughs> well, exactly. I'm looking at the chat room uh, conversation, and Lane Street says, "Is Nick a pilot too?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, 395. Ooh, Ooh. yep. A nice uh, round we've number. We've broken the 400-day barrier. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. All right. Wow. Crazy. Well, sorry to hear about your medical issues. I'm sure that you'll get those resolved soon, and you'll be up and flying in no time. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Get an Atlanta layover. Why don't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Let me know in advance, too. Make it on a weekend. Sure. Unfortunately, yeah, it's in New York is uh, my next trip. I don't know what I'll be getting the week, the month after. Ah. Well, well, I'm, I'm just working. saying, you know, those are my requests. Okay, man. Okay. Yes. Um, let's see. It looks like uh, Dana now uh, is back with us and he ha- is showing something to his camera. And it's obviously the certificate of command, Captain D.S. Colton. And uh, <laughs> there's some masking tape on that, Dana. <laughs> Well, it's actually sticky notes. Oh, okay. I, I use that. that nice job. That way it would not be permanent because I am going to have this framed. Yes, yeah, as and you should. My wing's right next to it. Let's see. I, there you go. See the All right. Maybe. Yep. Very nice. You can Very see nice. the engraving has my, now the date is not exact, but it is that month. Close enough. It was, it was the I actual. I get engraved day. wings. <laughs> you Maybe you can ask for I don't care. Are you jealous, Chef? (laughs) No, I don't care. Yeah, well. Anyway. uh, The day and month, 30 years later to the day from the day I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Very nice. So. All right. Well, um, yeah, as as, uh, Steph has mentioned and Dana has mentioned, the weather in the south uh, in the United States uh, this time of year especially in the afternoons and evenings, it uh, gets kind of crazy. Um, I, I left on a trip, um, what day was that? Tuesday, I think. And a four-day trip that I'm on now. And uh, the first day, I was rerouted as well. It was supposed to be just up to Pittsburgh and back, and then a nice short little hop over to Birmingham for a very nice long layover there. And uh, we were en route, and we got the message um, regarding our reroute that said, uh, well, you're not going to take that nice short little trip over to Birmingham. You're going to fly now to Detroit. And then after that, you're going to fly to Philadelphia. So we're going to add another leg. And these are longer legs to your day. But, you know, that's the way it works out sometimes. Sometimes you win some and sometimes you lose. And uh, was on the losing end of the stick this time. But uh, uh, we got into Philadelphia, not too late, uh, late afternoon. And had a nice layover at our, our hotel there. Very nice uh, hotel called the Warwick House. Is that I near think. Rittenhouse area? Uh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, it's a yeah. nice part of Philly. Just a block That's off a of Rittenhouse of Square. Yeah. And um, next day we got back on track, went, uh, flew to Atlanta, and then picked up the Atlanta to Buffalo. And that now you know put me back on the 
the scheduled trip. And I'm so happy that it worked out that way because I had planned to um, meet. Oh, before I do that, I should mention the uh, the previous Saturday, the uh, over the last week. I think I actually got home from my last trip on Saturday. And uh, that evening, I met up with an APG community member. Uh, Nick Chico uh, contacted me and said that uh, he was going to be in town. He is uh, flying, uh, doing some survey flying. And he said he was going to be in the Atlanta area for a couple of weeks and was wondering if I might be available to get together. And I said, well, yeah, over the weekend, um, that would be that would work out for me. So we decided to meet up in uh, a place kind of halfway between where he was flying. He was flying out of uh, Gwinnett County Airport and where I live. So I kind of looked at the map and said, looks like Duluth is about halfway between the uh, two of us. And uh, Minnesota. Not yes. du- no, Duluth, Georgia. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the Duluth, Georgia is not as not quite as famous uh, and well renowned as the Duluth, Minnesota, I guess. Uh, but uh, it's a northern Atlanta suburb, and so we met up at Pure Taqueria, and uh, we managed to record a little something here. So why don't we play that? I'm here with APG community member Nick Chico. That's it. Yes, I got it right. And uh, we have just finished a wonderful meal at uh, Pure. That's a capital P, capital U, capital R, capital E. I'm not sure why it's all capitalized, but uh, Pure Taqueria. And uh, we had some great uh, Mexican cuisine. And uh, we had a couple beers. And uh, of course, as we always say, the best part was the great conversation and camaraderie, talking about uh, Nick's um, budding career as a pilot and he is here in the Atlanta area on a special survey mission and uh, he said hey Jeff I'm in town uh, next couple of weeks and uh, if you if you have a chance let's get together so here we are Saturday night in uh, Duluth uh, kind of a suburban area of Atlanta very cool little place a lot of great little restaurants and uh, and uh, yeah I'm gonna let Nick say something to you all what's up apg crew uh this is nick chico uh standing next to captain jeff uh, outside of a really nice uh taco restaurant um just wanted to say what an honor it really was to finally meet the man behind the mic um wanted to give a shout out to uh, captain nick captain dana and dr steph um hope to be leaving you guys some feedback soon but uh would highly recommend if anybody is in the area of Atlanta um, and listens to this show. Uh, it was really great to reach out to everybody and speak with Captain Jeff. Um, you know, we were really, really lucky to have like a really awesome night out. And uh, you know, again, I couldn't be happier. It's it's been uh, it's been a really long time coming, and uh, hope to talk to you guys soon. But I'm going to give the phone back to Captain Jeff because I know he's uh, he's been up since 3:30 this morning. So. <laughs> Um, talk to you guys soon. All right. Yeah, as you said, uh, if you ever see that I'm going to be somewhere and uh, it works out, um, I, I always enjoy it. As I've said so many times before, best part of doing the show is uh, getting together with uh, the community and hearing everybody's stories. And uh, I'm just so excited for Nick. You know, he's just starting out like some other pilots that we know in the community that have uh, flown survey kind of jobs. and. Uh, you know, are moving their way up through the uh, through the career 
um, ladder and uh, I'm uh, just so thrilled for Nick and really enjoyed uh, spending time with him and uh, we hope to hear as he said some audio feedback and some more information about how he progresses through his his uh, progression so that's stupid progresses through his progression yeah. oh well you know that's what happens when I've been up for a long time and have had a couple of beers I guess anywho I'm looking down at my phone and yes I did hit the record button I'm so happy and uh, now I'm going to uh, kind of go into my car and and drive home and uh, that's about it so say goodbye Nick all right take care everybody nice talking to you guys all right back to you Jeff well thank you Jeff Nick really missed that opportunity. I threw up that softball. Say goodbye, Nick. He didn't say goodbye, Nick. No, I was I was desperately trying not to interrupt you in mid-flow. <laughs> I wasn't that rude. <laughs> Nick's just starting his flying career. Not this Nick. The the Nick that I was with in Duluth. A, a tale Georgia. of two Nicks. Yes. One at the beginning yeah. of the career, one at the end. There are actually exactly. a lot of Nicks in this community, aren't there? There are. Um, I was put, if you're watching the video, I was putting up a couple of, uh, photos of that. I did not take, but that bar, uh, is the, um, spot that we were, in fact, the two chairs <laughs> that are empty is exactly where Nick and I were sitting, uh, and enjoying our tacos and beer and conversation and, uh, a very nice little place. If you're ever up in that area of, uh, Atlanta, you should check it out. So, uh, it was a, a wonderful time. Uh, it was nice meeting you, Nick, if you're listening right now. He said that he uh, he has a lot of time to listen to podcasts while he's droning around taking pictures in the sky. So I thought that was pretty neat. And uh, and it won't be long before you know it. He'll be flying the, uh, the airlines, I'm sure. So, <sighs> okay. Um, so now back to my trip. Uh, made it to Buffalo yesterday. And... I arranged to meet up with somebody that a lot of folks know in the APG community. Her name is Tiffany, and I've known Tiffany uh, for, for many years, uh, going back to my uh, Catholic podcasting community days. And uh, so it was nice seeing her. It had been about a little over three years since we'd seen each other in person, uh, but you know we've been keeping track of each other's uh, lives since then. And uh, as I said, it was really nice to uh, see Tiffany. And Recorded a little bit of audio. Now, I'll warn you that I had my phone. It was another phone recording. It was a little windy, and I didn't have a windscreen for my phone microphone. So uh, bear with the uh, first part of it when we're uh, in the windy area of the streets in Buffalo, New York. Here we go. What was that show called? The Streets of San Francisco. Remember that? I yeah, it was probably before you were born. Well, I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we were. It's windy too. They probably uh, probably can't hear us, but we're walking the streets of Buffalo, New York. I'm here with Tiffany, and we just enjoyed a wonderful lunch and conversation at Dinosaur Barbecue in Buffalo, New York. I'm here on a layover. Tiffany saw I was going to be here. She said, let's get together, have lunch. And uh, that's what we just did. And we're walking back now to my layover hotel. And I believe you're walking toward the train. You're going to catch a train back up to your neck of the woods, right? I am. Hello. That's all you're going to see? Hello? <laughs> Say something. Um, good barbecue. What did we have? We had pulled pork, 
chicken. Uh, brisket. Yes, brisket. Ribs. Ribs. Uh, we had wings too. Uh, what do they call those? The, the tomato thing. Oh, fried, fried green, green tomatoes. tomatoes. Yeah. And uh, we had like a sample plate of yeah. uh, advertisers, deviled eggs, chicken wings. We had about everything they had on the menu. Yes. It's good. <laughs> but as I always say, uh, the best part of it was just talking. And we're crossing a street. We're, cr we're jaywalking. We are, yes. Uh-oh. Are they strict about that here? <laughs> no. Good. Anyway, so is this the train that you catch? Nope, I need the other direction. Yeah. Okay, well, where do you go? Right. Over this way? Okay, yeah. we'll walk over there. Still have a green light. Anyway, um, yeah, it was a great time. Had a wonderful food and uh, some good beers, too. We did. Yeah, so anyway, just wanted Tiffany to say hello to everybody in the community. Bye, everybody. Nice to chat with you. Bye. And uh, if again, if you're watching the video, that's a photo that our waitress took of us uh, seated at a Dinosaur Barbecue in Buffalo. It was a really good meal, and uh, we, we spent several hours talking with each other, and it was a lot of fun. All right. Um, I guess that's it for me. Um, day three right now, we're in, uh, or I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and... Dana, you said that uh, you were about to uh, contact uh, HI11E1 to uh, get together. I don't think he's here in town. He said that he was kind of bummed that he was going to be out of town when I was going to be here. So, oh, well. Yeah. Well, didn't work out anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Say okay. Hi. Well. I'm just um, impressed at all of the food that you guys consumed. Or but it was like, like little small portions. Um, so it was like okay. a sampler plate, uh, a lot of that stuff that we, that she was talking about, you know, the, gotcha. or we were talking about. And then the plate with the uh, actual meats on it were, uh, I think they call it the tre, tres ninos or something like that, like three okay. small portions. So gotcha. didn't really eat a lot, actually. Hmm. But I am hungry too, Tanya. <laughs> She's in the chat room saying, you're making me hungry. Yes. <laughs> My stomach's going to start growling, I'm sure. <sighs> okay. Um, go to La Oh, yeah. That would have been good. Show, go to La Scala. All right. Well, might just have to do that. Okay. Uh, so tomorrow I'm home, one leg home, hopefully, uh, from Baltimore to Atlanta. Kind of a gentlemanly show time in the morning, 730, and uh, get home before noon. And uh, we'll call it quits for this particular trip. And with that, unless anybody has anything else to say during our intro portion of the show, let's move on to the coffee fund. Nope. All right. Nope. Let's do it then. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. The coffee fund is your way as part of our community, if you have the financial resources to do so, uh, to contribute money. And we use that to offset the costs of doing our show and also for uh, helping us with our meetups all around the country, actually all around the world. And let's see, since the last show, we have a couple of folks that use the classic version of the uh, coffee fund. 
and I'm trying to keep this, the music from completely stopping. I have to hold my thumb here on my screen. <laughs> Uh, we have Max Nunn and... Oh, have you heard of this guy? Fred Sampson? Well, he's one of our contributors via the uh, classic coffee fund. Part of our coffee fund cadre. Thank is you, Fred. Fred's still alive? I uh, apparently so. That I have, ages. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I have evidence of it. He uh, made a contribution to the fund. Thanks. Maybe, maybe he uh, felt bad about not, uh, not showing up at any of these meetups lately. So... <laughs> Um, and uh, let's see, Patreon is the other way that you can uh, join the Coffee Fun Cadre, and that's uh, patreon.com. You can become a patron of the show. And since the last episode, we have exactly zero new patrons. <laughs> well, um, so if you want to learn about the Coffee Fund, uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, and you can find about our two different methods, the classic fund method and the patreon method and for all of you who have contributed uh recently and in the past or ever thank you so much we do appreciate it It really keeps us going and you know remember we have some big things planned for oshkosh next year so uh, we need to uh as as we said we need to change the uh, change it from coffee fund to rv fund i think or actually i'm not really sure that's what we're going to do or not but we've had some Suggestions from folks about some other options for our presence at uh, Oshkosh next year. So we're gonna we're gonna look at all those, weigh all the advantages and disadvantages, and see which one works best for us. So that's it. The Java Jive stopped quite some time ago, so I guess now it's probably time for me to push this button here. Stand by for news. Okay, during our last show recording, in the middle of it, actually, uh, this incident occurred. An Aeromexico Connect Embraer ERJ-190 registration X-Ray Alpha Golf Alpha Lima performing flight 2431 from Durango to Mexico City in Mexico, of course, with 97 passengers and four crew, rejected takeoff from Durango's runway 3 at about 3.15 in the afternoon local veered left off the runway and overran the end of the runway and burst into flames in viewing distance of the airport's apron. The aircraft was destroyed. There were no fatalities, and uh, several people did receive injuries, however. Uh, the, um, uh, there have been, and I'm sure that many of you have seen uh, various videos from this incident, uh, including some taken from inside the uh, airplane and uh, in fact maybe the all of them are from inside the airplane there were at least two different ones from inside the plane that i saw yeah and and that kind of gave us a, a kind of an idea of what may have happened apparently as they were beginning their takeoff roll there was a pretty strong uh, some strong convective activity going on and uh, a cell in fact one of the videos that i saw had a security camera view of and a time lapse view of a a cell 
making its way across the city and over the airport. And apparently, if you look at both of the uh, uh, or a couple of the videos from inside the cabin of the airplane during the takeoff, uh, you can actually tell where the airplane on the runway is kind of going through that that uh, cell. And uh, then apparently, or maybe, I don't know, they're still doing the, the investigation, but it certainly looks to me like that weather may have played a significant role in this crash and they perhaps uh, hit a, um, uh, what do they call it, a microburst or something mm -hmm. that forced it back down on the runway pretty uh, pretty violently, uh, enough so that the uh, both engines uh, came off the wings of the airplane. And uh, there was also some video of people actually you know kind of running away from the airplane and and some of it's you know kind of hard to listen to you know people crying and people kind of dazed and everything else so uh yeah so that's what we know so far i don't know if there's any other uh more up-to-date news uh if they've been able to uh investigate or analyze the uh the boxes the uh, flight data recorder or the cockpit voice recorder do you all know i haven't seen anything jeff i haven't okay. seen anything either mm -hmm. I am looking at the the me tires here though. Mhm. Mm and uh I mean the wind looks pretty benign. Mhm. Mm so that I, I don't know what they were, you know, it does say thunderstorm and that it began at 13 minutes after the hour. Um so, Have you had a chance to see the video from inside the airplane? Yeah, I, I did look at it. It looks really really dark out there, so I yeah. you know, I don't know. I mean, I doubt that down in Mexico they have the uh um, wind shear, um, low level wind shear warning, low systems. level wind shear, low level wind shear advisory system. I doubt they have it. So, yeah. you know, I'm just looking at the me towers and, and, and if I was looking at the me towers, I'd say, okay, wind zero seven zero three knots, seven miles, thunderstorm, you know, so I would turn on the radar myself and take a peek at it at the end of the runway and see what it looks like. If I see, you know, green, you know, maybe I'm okay, but you know, you, there's really, it's really no way to tell based on these METARs what was really going on. No, you can't from the METARs. But as you said, Dana, I mean, that's what all of us do. You know, you, you go, go into position, you have the radar on, you're, look, you're scanning your departure path and looking to see if there's anything, any significant weather there. And maybe the, I guess they made the decision that this uh, particular cell that was clearly there, and I'm sure they were painting, uh, perhaps they thought that that wasn't uh, significant enough to wait for the cell to pass over the uh, runway and uh, they proceeded with their takeoff so again this is all speculation we don't uh, we haven't heard anything official regarding i guess even further speculation i don't know that you read this part in the end of this article that about the ground observers uh reporting that the engine or the aircraft suffered an engine failure right at about v1 and actually i, th I thought it went pretty straight off the end of the runway but i guess they said it veered to the left off the runway and who knows, you know, what, so who, who what reason the yeah. engine failed, perhaps maybe there was so much rain and whatever exactly. coming out of that storm that it could have ingested enough to fail. I don't know. Hail. Yeah. Fail. Who knows? But yeah. it, it, it is indicative of someone who seems to have uh, pressed on for a takeoff when the conditions uh, obviously weren't suitable. Uh, how much information he had about that, I don't know. But, uh, you know. Uh, we're, we're not laughing at what Nick is saying. Nick has a picture of Jeff up behind him right now on the video. That is just. Come on. 
<laughs> Cross-eyed. I was trying yeah. so hard not to laugh while he was having that very serious I wasn't, commentary I wasn't looking, about this. I wasn't looking at the video, accident. and I'm thinking, why? Why is Dana laughing and snickering? Well, I couldn't hold it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know why he's laughing either. And when he started laughing, I started laughing. So, sorry. Sorry for. Interrupting your very serious commentary there. Yeah, Nick, I, I love the photo. Though, yeah. Very nice. Was that over it's at Nigel's all, house? It's all Jeff's fault. <laughs> I think that that's what Jeff looks like when he looks at the radar and <laughs> thinks about what he's about to do. Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I hate to say it, but I think there is an element there of uh, perhaps a bit of press on itis, trying to stick to his schedule and uh, perhaps, uh, fingers crossed, hoping the weather wasn't going to be as bad as it was or perhaps he just didn't look. Um, but uh, whatever, it seems to be a pretty violent bit of storm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, personally, I'd have been much happier just to taxi off the runway and sit and wait uh, for 20, 30 minutes, let it drift away, and then have another go. There you go. I I agree. And I, and I wonder how many legs that day they had done and, you know, whether it's... Oh, yeah, whether lots this, of mitigation, this, probably. Yep, and then, of course, uh, you know, was this a uh, go-home freedom leg? You know, these are, these are uh, go to the hotel for an overnight. You know, these are all the questions that could be possibly coming to, into play here. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we'll learn more uh, from the investigation uh, to see exactly what what occurred here. But, uh, all right, moving on, I guess we can move to the second item in our news folder. Uh, the moment Ryanair passengers escape on emergency shoot after a phone explodes minutes before takeoff. So I guess the uh, this is video of the Germanic moment that panicked tourists on a Ryanair holiday to Ibiza slid down emergency slides after a passenger's mobile phone battery exploded and caught light. Caught on fire, I guess. Holidaymakers could be seen falling over each other in a bid to get away from the aircraft after the inflatable chute was activated. The drama happened um, around 5.30 p.m. in the afternoon at Barcelona's Barcelona El Prat Airport as the packed plane prepared to take off for Ibiza. No one needed medical attention, although some passengers are said to have suffered slight burns as they went down the emergency chute. <laughs> so, uh, rubber burns, I guess. Well, some of them, you know, they're going on holiday to Ibiza, where it's warm, presumably. Mm-hmm. There's some of these pictures. Uh, passengers are wearing rather short shorts and uh, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't make for a... Like it wasn't a big jet with a, a really long slide, because that would have been nasty. Yeah. And uh, apparently this is in our news folder because, uh, well, number one, um, it, it kind of points out how crazy it can be to see an actual emergency evacuation and the fact that, uh, you know, people are trying to quickly get off the airplane. And that sometimes means that somebody may, one or more people may still be on the slide as you're starting down the slide. And this is not a rather long slide. It's uh, off of a 737. And uh, you might hit people on the way down, or you may be one of the people hit in the back by somebody coming down the slide behind you. But that's just the way it is. It's better to get you off the airplane as quickly as possible and away from danger. Uh, And that sometimes means, as we mentioned so many times on this show, that that's a tough decision for us captains to make when we decide to execute an uh, an evacuation, because we know that there are people going to get hurt, at least in some minor way, and sometimes even major injuries occur during these evacuations but then of course the peste resistance the people 
coming out of the jet with their luggage. Yay, people. Yeah. Way to go. Um, yeah. And, and looking at this slide on to what you, you're saying, Jeff, I mean, I counted six people at the bottom of the slide piled up with one more on the way down the slide. Yeah. So, I mean, it's crazy. All, all you know, six like people on the slide. The yeah. They're like stuck at the bottom with people coming down behind them. Yeah. It's like, get, get off the side. Move, and then of course move, the guy move. that's taking the photo, the, the video, uh, yeah. instead of helping the passengers off the slide, he's out nah, there taking I'll just a video stand over here and document for social yeah. media. Oh, well, um, did you see the video after the fact of the actual fire of the of the phone? No, I didn't. What was that? It was very, it was very minor. It was like really we we did an Un- evacuation for very <laughs> underwhelming, and but that's one of those things. Uh, again, now we're up in the cockpit. The cockpit door is closed. We're relying on information from our cabin crew as to what is happening. There's a fire. You're trying to figure out in your head, you know okay what a fire oh, we need to evacuate um you know not knowing and not seeing that this is really kind of a small almost a non-eventful th- i mean there was some flame coming from the thing but we have you know procedures now and uh devices on the airplanes to help us deal with and cope with these kind of things and uh yeah if you ever see the uh look for the video of the actual phone battery catching on fire and you'll see oh, maybe we shouldn't have done an evacuation but again that's second guessing and you really can't know exactly the extent of what's happening in the back of your airplane you have to rely on uh, communication from your crew yeah and that that is often the problem i mean i think we probably got a much better and clearer idea of what is worth evacuating for and what is not uh, and unfortunately the cabin crew don't get that kind of depth of training or experience usually Right, right. So I've noticed that the selection of pictures that Nick has chosen to uh, display uh, right behind him are all me either making faces or drinking. I did it. I did a lot of drinking when I was in the he, UK. That's for sure. He's so good with his timing on his pictures. Really, yeah. oh, well, very flattering. Thank you. But, uh, yes, yes. There you go. No problem at all. Another pint, Jeff. Yes. Why there not? You go. <laughs> that pretty much sums up my time in the UK. It's it's another a very pint. good thing that that Jeff had his liver transplant scheduled before he left because <laughs> he'd probably still be on the waiting list for the replacement. Yep. <laughs> All right. Anything else to say about the Ryanair uh, evacuation? No. No, but you dress, can bet dress appropriately and cases. <laughs> don't take your stuff with you yeah. if you've got to get off the plane. Let's see if I can find my sound effect for this. Um, I should have looked at this beforehand, but uh, it's the one where the guy says, brilliant. <laughs> um, police. I thought you were looking for a sound effect for this next one. Yeah, that's what I am looking for. Okay. Uh, C. Darwin Woods. Yeah. I thought uh, you were looking for the uh, bad boys theme. Well, I could do that as well. Yeah, I should be able to find that one, right? Uh, let's see if I hit B, what happens? Nope, that's Bell. <laughs> Bell. <laughs> Um, you could say dingling yeah well just imagine the bad boys music in the background hmm. i'm not boys, sure why i can't boys. find anything what you, gonna do? what you gonna do when they come for you bad boys bad boys, bad okay. boys. thank you that's that's even better than the original thank you dana uh so uh this is an article from the tex arcana news 
And a man was arrested at the Texarkana Regional Airport on July 4th, allegedly told investigators he intended to fly a stolen plane to a rap music concert in another state. Asked about his lack of training as a pilot, Zamarcius Devin Scott, 18, allegedly told the Texarkana, Arkansas police that he didn't believe there was much more to the task than pushing buttons and pulling levers, according to a probable cause affidavit used to create the following account. It was about 2.30 in the morning when airport security personnel contacted police about seeing a man jump a fence and attempt to enter an American Eagle twin-engine jet. By the time officers arrived, the suspect, later identified as Scott, had gotten onto the small commercial plane and closed the door behind him. When officers shined a flashlight into the plane's cockpit from outside the jet, they could see a man sitting in the pilot seat with his hands below the window and out of direct view. Fearing for their safety, an officer drew his weapon and ordered the man to keep his hands up where they could be seen. Keep your hands up where we can see them. That was actually real audio from the scene. Um, when, when the suspect turned his gaze toward the officers, two of them allegedly recognized Scott from past encounters. Uh-oh, <laughs> a serial violator. Two of the three responding officers got the plane's doors open while the third continued to monitor Scott until he could be taken into custody. On Monday, Chief Deputy Prosecu- Prosecuting Attorney Chuck Black formally charged Scott with commercial burglary and attempted theft of property with a value greater than $25,000. Yeah, a lot more than $25,000. So anyway, he's he's being uh, held in the Miller County Jail with a bail set at $25,000. I was hoping there would be a little bit more information here if uh, maybe he was some kind of a a maintenance technician or something and knew something about airplanes or maybe a student pilot, but apparently none of those apply in this case. It was just a dude that thought, all you have to do is get inside the cockpit of an airplane and hit a few buttons and the thing will just magically do its thing. That's the How state. hard could it be? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, absolutely. Good job we hide that takeoff button, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it is. you know, my, me and man Micah makes a very good, good point. Thank God it was, uh, you know, I don't know what, it, obviously if it was a regional jet, it wasn't a Boeing either, but it wasn't an Airbus. You know, Airbus <laughs> is designed to be operated by idiots. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Gosh, I'm really only kidding. You can't take that back down. (laughs) So you're just public enemy number one now. That's okay. When he starts flying the airbus, yeah, I am going to go to the airbus. Now, now, kids, never going to a Boeing. It's going to be an airbus. Let's play nice now. Let's play nice. But you know that does show say something about the state of the public's understanding of what our jobs are as pilots well obviously if you guys can be replaced by you know automation completely obviously how hard could it be exactly it needs to be one of us there's only one of him he's just got to find the right button or someone on the ground remotely you know just monitoring things making sure you make good points stuff you make good points okay uh continuing on to d uh tsa is considering eliminating screening at smaller airports and uh oh wait i have a note from our producer please see an update to this news item at the bottom the tsa is now saying they are not pursuing this plan well i did hear this um in the mainstream media and other uh cable news sources that uh, the faa was apparently seriously considering um stopping security at some smaller airports that actually service 
you know, part 121 airline operations. And, and when I heard that, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Are, you know, do, do we not remember uh, September 11, 2001, uh, where the hijackers purposely picked smaller airports because of the fact that they thought that the security would be more lax? And uh, I think either all or many of the 9-11 uh, terrorists uh, boarded or cleared security through our main man Micah's airport, uh, Portland, Maine. And uh, then they flew from there to Boston. And uh, yeah, well, the know. problem is once you're on a regional carrier and you end up at a hub city, if no you're not coming security. in from an international destination, you don't have to re clear security. Nope. You're just in the terminal with everyone else. Yeah. So I'm thinking to myself when I'm hearing about this, thinking how they can save a little money by doing this, I'm thinking, I don't think you really understand, um, you know, how ridiculous this uh this whole uh this whole idea is and then here the article at the bottom of the article thank you liz uh, tsa sources confirmed to cbs news is chris's chris van cleave that the agency has no plans to drop security screening at 150 small airports the proposal mentioned in a pair of cnn reports was never under serious consideration it was the sources said just part of an annual budget exercise that assumed a worst case scenario for the 2020 budget. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little backpedaling, I'm sure. <laughs> what, what, what would they believe if we told them that was, we were just kidding, you know, playing around? No, it's just, you know, you got to plan for, you know, worst case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty that's a, bad case scenario. Yeah. I don't even know why that's even a scenario to consider ever. <laughs> so. Sounds like a bit of uh, fierce backpedaling to me. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think so too. Covering their bases, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yep. Just another pen- pencil pusher trying to save a buck. Yeah, and not really and, understanding and, the practicality of what they're considering. No, no, an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. All right. The, boss, um, the Boston boy saying how it is. Yep, and we appreciate that uh, perspective. Um, and I'm not being facetious. Um, American woman dragged off San Francisco bound flight from Seoul. Uh, a, oh, this lady was a self in, in quotes here, self upgrader forcibly removed from a Korean <laughs> air business class. An American woman was forcibly removed from a business class seat on a Korean air flight bound for San Francisco international airport last week. According to various sources, there's a video of the incident, uh, posted on the Korea Jungang daily YouTube page. Uh, the original video now disabled was not pixelated and was more dramatic because, so I guess they have a pixelated version on there now, I guess, to protect, um, anyway, Korean website, allkpop.com reports that the woman who originally booked an economy seat sat down in the business class seat. Instead, the woman refused to move and caused a disturbance when the flight attendant told her you have to sit in your designated seat. In the video, you can see the woman seated in the last row of business class in an aisle seat in which she reportedly upgraded herself to and then refused to move. A cadre of female security officers began the removal process as the video begins. She's chanting something about U.S. marshals, then dragged down the aisle, David Dow style, <laughs> screaming Gosh. that uh, Korean Air has stolen her passport. It ends with the woman restrained in a wheelchair at the door of the plane for removal, saying, Meanwhile, at SpaceX... Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Takes all sorts. Uh, in polite Korean fashion, the team that removed the woman from the plane offered her a blanket as she rolled away. 
Korean Air confirms that the incident occurred at eight, uh, on its 8 p.m. departure from Seoul to San Francisco on July 27th, re- resulting in a delay of about an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, the passenger is a female U.S. citizen, yay, United States, Woo-hoo. and was assigned to seat 40D in economy class. <laughs> she moved to seat 14B in business. I could see the, I can understand the, the Yeah, there's a four in there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if you you know can't see very well if you're a little bit older and you need reading glasses and you forgot them that B could that D could look like a B, you know. She didn't easily. fight like an old lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I, I didn't see the video myself. Was she was she fighting a lot? I think she oh, was just yes. screaming. Oh, absolutely, cat fight. So lovely. She's walking back, and you know she sees this seat. Nobody's sitting in there. So what would be the harm of that? Exactly. Right. Anyway. Yeah, unless you're upgraded, I think that's called theft of some sort, right? You think? Yeah. There's a reason that we have uh like different classes and different prices for tickets and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's what I should have done to Jeff's seat. I should have just <laughs> gone there and sat and just it. grabbed it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Go take the one in the back, Jeff. You'll fit better. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't think it through. No. Good thing. Oh, uh, anyway, so we'll we'll put this in the show notes. You can watch the original video uh, there by clicking on that uh, link. Um, continuing on, several dead after a small plane crash crashes in the Swiss forest. This is an interesting one. Um, uh, we have received, we have several uh, sources, I guess, articles on the incident below. This first one, though, we'll start reading from, I'm not sure which one it's from, what source, but uh, the plane crash in the forest. Uh, in near the Swiss Alps, I, guess, I think. Oh, um, yes. Police say the aircraft burnout and officials have not been able to confirm the exact number and identity of those who died. Uh, the aircraft went down uh, near the town of Hergesville, with police alerted to the crash just before 10 a.m. local time. Authorities sent a helicopter to extinguish the burning wreckage of the aircraft before rescue workers could get to the scene. Um, apparently, the airplane was a um, now, I'm not sure if this is the way you pronounce the name of this airline, Jew Air or Zhu Air. Um, well, it's Yonkers, so I guess that... Uh, U Air, maybe? Well, when you use J-U on its own, I don't quite know, but yeah. uh, I guess it really refers to the fact that it's a, a J-U-52. Okay. So Jew. Okay, that makes sense. Apparently you, an airline right that operates these uh, vintage airplanes. <laughs> Talk yeah, about me, I'm right here. What did he say? Someone said Jew. Oh, <laughs> sorry. We're not being right culturally here. sensitive. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that. That's uh, that's uh, that's pretty funny. Sorry. J-U stands for Junker 52. <laughs> okay, very good. Yeah. Or a Junker, right? A Junker. A Junker. Uh, so according to the Aviation Herald, um, this flight was operating from Locarno to Dubendorf, Switzerland. With 17 passengers and five, three crew, it impacted terrain, blah, blah, blah. I think I was reading somewhere that there was some report, uh, a pilot had reported that about 10 miles from his, or from where this thing crashed, he saw the airplane fly overhead, and I'm scrolling frantically now to see that. Uh, do, do you know what I'm talking about? There's, there was some kind of a tweet or some kind of report from somebody that said, so that. there was an eyewitness report saying that it uh, it plunged, uh, it was in a turn, and then it kind of dropped vertically. Dropped yeah. vertically down. So, 
you know, you have to instantly think stalling in the turn, but don't know exactly what was going on there. But there was there was a guy that was a, a reportedly a pilot that before this happened, the same airplane, the same flight, uh, closer to where this person lived, saw the same kind of thing. the The airplane was in a left bank, and then it banked really rapidly at some point, and then started falling from the sky, and then reportedly whatever the pilot did to recover it, it recovered. And then they continued on with their flight. And then oh, apparently really? it happened again. And then this time the pilot was not able to recover the airplane. And uh, I don't know where I read that because I can't seem to find it now. Um, looking at the articles that we have here on the uh, Evernote site. But um, anyway, I thought that was an interesting piece of information that might help with the investigation of what happened here and i'm not sure did these things even require um flight data recorders or voice recorders no, they're, they're world war ii vintage oh. so, yeah. okay wow well hopefully they'll figure tragic. out what happened uh, i mean there was an awful lot of families and um you know uh, elderly people holiday makers on board it was and um, they all died so just mm. dreadful really Sounds like it could be some kind of a control problem that uh, caused this crash. Hopefully, they'll be able to figure it out by you know seeing what's left of the wreckage. Yep. Okay. So it was high temperature. Uh, there was it was a bit gusty. It can't be easy flying an aircraft of that vintage uh, around the mountains. Uh, you have to, you'd have to be very careful, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not easy. That would be challenging uh, a flight regime to uh, yeah. operate in. Absolutely. Yeah, that's sad. Oh, well. Um, Hopefully, we'll find out something uh, here in the future about what happened there. And then, uh, finally, uh, another incident uh, in Santa Ana, California, at the John Wayne Airport, Orange County. Um, Apparently, five people on board a small airplane were killed, but nobody on the ground was hurt when the twin-engine Cessna crashed Sunday in a Southern California parking lot. The pilot of the Cessna 414 declared an emergency before crashing about a mile from John Wayne Airport, according to FAA spokeswoman Arlene Salak. The plane was heading to the airport southeast of Los Angeles when it came down and struck an unoccupied parked car in the lot of a Staples store and a CVS pharmacy, said Orange County Fire Authority Captain Steve Concialdi. There was no fire and nobody on the ground was hurt. And, uh, Looking at the photos, I was kind of astonished that this airplane ended up where it was, and it doesn't appear that it hit a darn thing. It must have been coming down almost vertically. Yeah, I, I, I mean, because it's where it is. There's trees surrounding it. It doesn't look like it went through any of the trees, as far as you can tell. You know, it's in a parking lot. It hit one car, I guess, that was unoccupied. But there's looks like there's a gas station there too, and other stuff in that parking yeah, lot like buildings and yeah it looks like a gas station right behind it well that would have been awful if it really the bad. gas station i mean terrible enough as it is with five yeah. people on board but yeah i mean pretty amazing that um there were no additional casualties plane is registered to the san francisco-based real estate company category three and uh, apparently there was a uh, young lady among the uh, uh, fatalities that was a real estate agent and I don't know what they were doing, perhaps going around and looking at some of the real estate there in the uh, Santa Ana, uh, Newport Beach area, perhaps. I don't know. But that's a sad story. So, 
Anything else to say about that other than, wow, I can't believe that uh, nobody was hurt on the ground, and thank goodness? No, other than that, I, I continually read from the FAA uh, safety um, initiatives that they're, they're really working hard on trying to reduce the incident rate in GA aircraft and encourage people to uh, maintain their skills. And this, you know, would appear at first glance to be just one of those cases. Yeah. I'm wondering if it is a, uh, we typically, or we seem to hear a lot of these fuel starvation stories. I wonder if they just yeah, plain old ran know, out obviously, of gas. I mean, we don't know what the issue was, but he did have time to report that he had an emergency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, if anybody listening out there, uh, especially if you live in the Santa Ana area or Southern California, if you know something about this story, uh, you know, send us some feedback about it and see if we can figure out what, what happened here. But in the meantime... What we're going to do is we're going to continue on with the best part of the show, which, of course, is your great feedback. Captain, incoming message. Okie doke. Let's see. The first item that I see in our feedback folder, and I'm clicking on it, and it's not coming up. Oh, here it is. Uh, This is from John. And this, he says, he starts right off, Cap, this is for Captain Nick. It is especially fitting and proper that you be in England and at Farnborough, but tonight, wait a minute, I didn't read that correctly. It, it is especially fitting and proper that you be in, no, I did, in England at Farnborough, but tonight at the EAA's uh, Air Venture in Oshkosh, they are having a program in the theater, the theater in the woods to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the RAF's establishment. I could not help but think what a contribution your experiences and your style would have brought to the stage. May you and your colleagues enjoy a very happy 100th anniversary. And to you, Dr. Steph, Captain Jeff, and to the still relatively newly minted Captain Dana, fair skies, better than forecast tailwinds, and God bless and speed you. Thank you, John. Very nice. What a very nice thing to say. And uh, I think Dana is not newly minted, newly engraved, I think is the appropriate phrase. Yeah, now I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you, um, yeah. I, I was shaming what wasn't there. I would like to have seen uh, what the, uh, the uh, folks at Oshkosh thought of uh, the 100th anniversary of the RAF. So, shame I missed it. Yeah, and it's kind of cool that they took the time to do that Very all cool. way over in the uh, colonies yes <laughs> colonies well i guess they were wisconsin, really colonies was, in wisconsin. No. <laughs> was that the 14th uh, no, no. not even close <laughs> all right next one this is from triad andrew yeah, he says a friend of mine posted this on instagram and given captain jeff's history with the tristar i thought it would be of interest to the apg crew and community Perhaps one of these sprawling estates we keep hearing about would make a proper home for this priceless piece of aviation history. And included in his article was a link to this Instagram posting. Uh, the TriStar that to which he's referring is only a piece of the TriStar. Uh, and uh, kind of the top half of the fuselage and the first, well, the cockpit area minus the nose cone. And back through, I think, the... Uh, first class section of the of the jet and there's some interior pictures as well and it looks like everything is pretty well intact uh for the most part the first class seating and uh looking at the seats 
Yeah. Nice, big, comfy seats, huh? Yeah. Don't see that anymore. That's for sure. No. Not even first class, right? No. No. I'm the first one. Danny, you'd be very comfortable in that airplane. I think I would be. You would have really enjoyed flying it. I mean, those seats were just awesome in the front. Um, Picture of the the cockpit, uh, interior of the cockpit. And it's uh, the focus, of course, is the most important seat in that uh, cockpit, which is the first officer's seat. That's where I was sitting. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I actually probably did sit in that actual seat uh, on that particular uh, ship number. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's uh, November 786-DL. Was it you that left why. that stain? It might be, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's see. I was reading through some of the conversation on Instagram regarding this, and somebody was saying, how much do they, do they want for it? And uh, several people say they think around $50,000. That's all. Wow. Captain well, Jeff would pay that just to get that control column so he could stick it in his den. <laughs> right. Uh, no. And unfortunately, the coffee fund uh, coffers are not that full. Mm. I thought about it if, if it wasn't 50, because I've spent a lot of time in that first class cabin. And, yeah. Uh, you spent a lot more time in the cockpit, but uh, it's a, you know, what a, one, a wonderful piece of history right there. Yeah, it is. I wish it I is. could afford to buy it. Yeah. Well, somebody will hopefully, and they'll do Is something it? right with Put it. Put it in Carlos's garden. No. Yeah. Carlos would really love that thing. All right. Um, so a couple of Nicks, uh, Nick Hewitt and Wilson, uh, Paul, Texas, Charlie, George, Steve, and Jake, amongst others, uh, sent in this. So that it, w- it had a lot of interest from our community, this particular incident that uh, is captured on a YouTube video. And uh, let's see, maybe I should play the video. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. The beginning okay. and the end of the best bits. Okay. Okay, um, we're going to, as Nick mentioned, that was the first part, which is the setup, um, the event, and then toward the end, why don't I go ahead and just scroll forward here and see if we can catch some of the last conversation between Shamrock 104 Heavy and the uh, JFK controller. Not sure at what point uh, in this we're going to get it, so I'm just going to guess here. So let me click right here. 
and hit the play button. Shamrock 104, heavy contact, your departure, 126.8, we'll see you. 104 heavy, and before I go, it's in play of any situation, we flew the aircraft in a safe manner, and my boss will be in contact with your boss. Good day. Shamrock 104 heavy, and understood, and I, I do understand and appreciate that, but again, you know, there's not you're the runway, and you've taken a, clear, a clearance and you've set the departure clearance, and you're seeing that weather straight ahead on a runway, and everybody off that airport is turning left. I mean, there's not too many options here in New York. It's not my first day in New York. It's not my first day in an aircraft. I did what I had to do. Good day. One, two, three, I just wish that he, uh, the Shamrock guy, wasn't wearing his oxygen mask or whatever it was. It's very hard to understand. Shamrock 104 heavy. I think that's probably because he was biting his tongue at the same time. <laughs> I expect I know what he'd like to have said. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, everybody thought that we could have a good conversation about you know, what a pilot is cleared to do, uh, what happens when we're presented with a situation, a dynamic situation involving weather. And of course, we're concerned about the safety of our airplane, the safety of our passengers, and uh, the fact that uh, air traffic control has perhaps different priorities. And, you know, when they get boxed into a situation, how they react and, uh, and more. So who wants to start with this one? I would say uh-huh. Nick, yeah, go, right? Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I was going to say Nick because you probably fly in and out of JFK the most out of all of us. Well, I certainly have done. Uh, and I wouldn't say that this particular reaction is unusual because uh, the New York controllers can be very brusque at times. Um, and they obviously, uh, when they're under pressure, uh, and I know how incredibly constrained their airspace is. But... Um, if you need to go into lengthy uh, explanations as to why you don't want a pilot to do something, um, that just to me smacks of the fact that you're you're losing um, you know the thread a little bit. Uh, just try and adhere to what the guy wants. Give him the best you can, and if you can't do it, then give him something else. But uh, berating the bloke as he did and making him just basically fly orbits about three orbits. He made him fly, uh, until he, it was like putting him in the naughty corner Time until out. he found a, a heading that he would accept. Um, I, I thought that was, um, uh, offside. So, uh, on the other hand, uh, I thought that the Aer Lingus bloke might've been a bit more flexible, uh, he might have uh, offered a, a few alternatives rather than just refusing the heading. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit on both sides, but uh, certainly uh, the Aer Lingus captain came out for me on top because he kept his cool throughout and just did what he was uh, told to do. Uh, and I thought the um, the controller um, really should have, uh, uh, you know, uh, had a bit of a chat with his supervisor on how uh, better to conduct that next time. Uh, having been to Heathrow many, many times in similar conditions, uh, I hate to go on about it. And I know Adam is one of our friends and uh, who works there. In fact, several friends who work there. So, but I'm not being biased. They handle these kind of situations completely differently. In other words, they do their absolute utmost to help everybody out. Uh, and they do it in a really calm and efficient manner. And that's kind of what I like 
Uh, and in New York, they take the almost the opposite attitude. We're here to push tin. Don't get in our way. Um, let us do our thing and just go along with it because uh, otherwise you're going to upset my day and I'm going to make you suffer a little bit by making you just fly around in circles until uh, you know I can work out what to do with you. Really, it's it's not appropriate. And I looked at a little bit of video and uh, the heading initially that uh, you wanted to go on to did have uh, a bit of weather there. There's no doubt about it. And weather moves. It's a it's a you know movable feast. The fact that previous aircraft had gone under that heading without problems, there's no reason why some weather couldn't have drifted in onto that heading and made it very hard for uh, the Aer Lingus aircraft to take it up. But between them, there was a, a almost immediate breakdown of of cooperation. Uh, whereas it should be the opposite between the pilot and the controller. They should be working together to solve problems, not butting heads. Well said. Well said. Um, perhaps there was a little right and a little wrong on both sides of the thing, but the way that the controller reacted was probably where it went out of bounds. And, uh, you know, he could have, as you said, Nick, just given him what he was requesting and, you know, keeping it calm and and not you know, kind of ber berating him for not doing what everybody else was doing and uh, going into the levels of weather and all that kind of thing. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think I'll go yeah. ahead. Steph. No, I was just thinking, you know, it's like a lot of jobs out there where 99% of the time everything goes as expected and nothing's real exciting. But then that, you know, small percentage of the time where something comes up that doesn't go quite as planned. Um, you know, you have to be able to, when you're working in those kind of high stress environments, keep your cool with it, identify the problem, solve the problem and remain professional at the same time. Because at the end of the day, everyone in both on both sides of that scenario, they're all professionals and you have to conduct yourself in a professional manner in order to, you know, keep everyone safe. Yes. I just have one thing to say. He's in Nyaka. <laughs> How did I know that was coming? <laughs> I was said yeah. those nine comments about New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, <laughs> is there a lot of love lost between Boston and New York? There is none whatsoever. <laughs> well, I must admit, when I leave uh, track on and head, head up, and, and the next controller is Boston, I kind of relax a bit. Admittedly, I'm moving into higher airspace, and the traffic's less dense, but I always get a great service out of Boston, and I always uh, have to gird my loins and sort of mentally prepare myself for facing New York. Yeah, and, and that's and that's the whole reason why I wanted you to, you know, kind of, I thought it would be uh, very good that you start off because you fly in and out of that airspace all the time, uh, especially now. I mean, it's been years since I've been actually, well, no, I've been up to New York recently, but it's just, they're, they're very rough around the edges. I think that would be the best way to say it. They, they The way this guy handled it was very typical of New York. And just they think they can they control everything, which is what their job is. Um, however, the way that they they handle themselves is is they they don't really take um, any abnormal situation uh, very well, and that's why there tends to be a lot of delays up there because they're just dealing with such a high stress environment. And I'm not making excuses for the guy, but it's a very high stress, high density environment that's very difficult. I mean, if if he had taken that right-hand turn, I mean, more or less, he'd be heading towards Newark. 
yeah, mean, you know, and, and that's that's uh, you know, this very tight space, and we've talked about it before. I think Jeff uh, mentioned going into Newark one time, took the entire you know northern New Jersey tour because you know you have to keep you low. If I, mean, I think it's five or seven thousand feet all the way around, all the right way around the the horn, keeping you below all the Teterboro traffic and below all the LaGuardia and JFK. I mean, it's just it's just if you take a really good look at that airspace up there, it it's so confined. So. I think he was probably taken back a little bit by Eolingus's request, but you know we can't question what he saw on his radar because, well, what he saw is what he saw, and he didn't want to go into it. So the air traffic controller should have tried to work with him instead of giving him the flack, in my opinion. So you know, I guess in, in the very first time I listened to that, my initial thought when he, you know, wanted that uh, different heading was, well, you know, if there's other traffic there, of course he's not going to be able to approve that for you but i think the controller should have said what the specific reason was and you know like everyone else has suggested maybe offered an alternative or it you know at least remain calm about it you know and that's the exact reason why i don't want to go to chicago i don't want to up in the penalty box like that because i have no idea where i'm going in chicago the place is just not us very much like new york but <laughs> yeah you talk about you mean on the much. once you're on the ground, you mean right? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> on the crazy. ground, that place is just crazy. But anyway, it's a little intimidating. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I, I think I, I agree with Nick on, on 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 the assessment. I mean, he was very professional, the Erlingus guy, and uh, you know that that controller maybe should have given some other options or, you know, instead of just putting the guy in hold it uh, on the departure because what he did was. Uh, um, you know, probably delayed further departures off off the air, off the, the ground in JFK by holding them right over the, the departure corridor right there. So I don't know, crazy. Uh, so Nick, uh, apparently he was the first one to send in the uh, the feedback regarding this. Um, he wanted to ask us a few questions, and I think we kind of already answered this uh, or these, but uh, were the uh, Air Lingus crew right to decline the heading based on their weather radar? And I think we all agree, yes, because when you're the pilot in command, you are the one that makes the decisions. Uh, what would the APG crew have done in this instance? And uh, again, we would have said, we would have expressed our concern and said, we cannot accept that heading um, and, you know, give us something else, uh, I guess, would be the answer for that. Um, the air traffic controllers. I'm sorry, Jeff. Go ahead. I no. have a bit of lag there on the internet. I say, if the guy gives me a heading and I can't go exactly on that heading, I try and usually offer him an alternative. Can I just go 10 degrees right of that or 20 degrees right just to avoid the weather? Or can you bring me a bit further through rather than just saying, no, I can't do the heading? Because that kind of leaves the controller going, well, what the hell do you want me to do with you then? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Good point. Yeah. Give an, op an option, what, you, what you're thinking, what your plan yeah. is, is for this. Um, the ATC controller sure comes across as somewhat aggressive, or is that usual for JFK? And I think we've answered that. That yeah. is, <laughs> that's kind of normal. <laughs> and he says, oh, and by the way, I visited the Airbus factory in Hamburg today. And the good news is, or is it Hamburg? <laughs> we, have we, do we ever uh, decide what the pr proper pronunciation yeah, was? Yeah, and I think it's neither. Okay. Hamburg, Hamburg. And the good news is there are dozens of A320 and A350 family aircraft on the production line, plus several A380 on their way. We'll keep Captain Nick happy. Saw quite a few bin liners parked up at Heathrow waiting 
awaiting new engines. And let's face it, Terminal 5 is the home of the 747 Dinosaur. I'll have the chance to sample its prehistoric features when I fly Heathrow to JFK with British Airways in a few weeks. And uh, he gave us a link to a YouTube video uh, regarding that. And he says, uh, cheers. Nick. It's a nice uh, chance to get to fly it before they all retire. Yes. Or at least all the passenger service ones. Mm -hmm. I think the, the freighters will probably be around for quite a bit longer. Oh, yeah, um, yeah flying trash around the world. <laughs> yeah, none of, none of always, those goods are products you consume or use, I'm sure. <laughs> you always have the right thing to say there, Nick. <laughs> and and the bin lines are on the ground because of what engine? Yeah, An English-made yeah. engine? Uh, I don't think you'll find it's British. British. And I think you'll find um, there's an awful lot of American components in it as well. <laughs> hey, Dana, I, I noticed there was some sound. At first, I thought it was the, your, your garage door, but I'm thinking, uh, looking at the map, I'm getting alerts from my phone because it thinks I'm in Atlanta, I guess, uh, that there are some severe thunderstorms. Is that thunder that I heard in the background? Yeah, actually, the entire house shook. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have been a really, it was really close. I, I mean, I'm not looking out the window to see what the flash, you know, how, how long the flash was between the, the boom and the flash to tell me how far it was, but it wasn't very far at all. So it just passed over the house. I've been sitting here looking at the radar. Actually, it's, it's quite nasty outside. Why, well, you know, if, if it's being picked up by that microphone, it has to be pretty significant because a lot of the times, like Steph has said, you know, it's thunder and lightning where she is, she is, and we don't hear it at all through her mic. So, it oh must yeah, be no, really, it, just, really it looks pretty sad. bad. I'm looking at your radar right now. <laughs> yeah, it, it there is a significant straight line. Yes. I mean, north south straight line, uh, right over uh, where I live. So Let's it's see. nice, pretty red colors on the. Uh, oh, radar how pretty! There. Yeah. yeah. Let me see. Yeah. It's, uh, well, hunker down if you need to. If you need to head to the basement. Um, oh, no, I will. I will. No, no, there's no way in this world I will be going to my basement. Okay. But, oh, yeah. You'll just since, get carried away with the tornado then off to, <laughs> off to the land of Oz. If you zoom out, this straight, I mean, it's quite literally almost a straight line. goes just from the west of uh, Knoxville. I'm probably about 50 miles north of Knoxville, straight on down to Peachtree City, just before Peachtree City. Straight line. So that's what's passing over the house now. And, it's, and I'm sure that's not going to impact the uh, Atlanta International Airport no, at all. It will be in Atlanta, at the airport here in about 10 to 15 minutes is my guess because it's just a straight line. And uh, mm. I'm on vacation, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> all right well relax relax they can't call me they okay. could just not to answer the phone like yeah and they and they can't use you anyway because you're on vacation that's our contract um okay let's move on number four dan uh he says hello i'm an aspiring no i am aspiring to be a military pilot with the hopes of eventually flying for fedex I was wondering if you knew anything about the transition from military to civilian piloting. With eight-plus years of flying experience, do ex-military pilots still have to pay their dues as a first officer, or can they be employed as an aircraft captain at higher salary? Thanks, Dan. Well, Dan, um, it's good to be an aspiring military pilot. It's going to be more than eight years. It's going to be, you know, probably 10-plus, 11 years, something like that. And... 
um, yeah, you, you're still going to have to pay your dues unless uh, FedEx changes their contract or any of the other majors here in the U.S. change their contracts. You're going to have to start from that entry-level position and work your way up, and they don't give you any credit uh, or merit at all based on your previous experience. Now, I know that's different in other parts of the world and different airlines around the world and perhaps some other non-legacy major kind of carriers here in the U.S., but uh, that would be um, my my understanding of it. And uh, But, you know, hopefully you can work your way up through the ranks and uh, you're, you'll get some seniority eventually. Yeah, and use you as an example, uh, Jeff. If Captain Jeff were to no longer be with the Acme outfit for whatever reason, if we were not, you know, God forbid, obviously went out of business, or whatever, but uh, uh, Jeff would apply at another American carrier. And you have how many years flying experience now at, at uh, Acme? At Acme, uh, almost 30. Almost 30 years. So if he got, let's, let's say he went to FedEx right now with 30 years worth of flying, including uh, include, plus his military career, uh, he would be the most junior first officer at FedEx. So yep. and all that experience counts for nothing. It, it, it's just you're basically married to one company within, within the United States. Yes. And I just looked at my logbook, well, electronic logbook. Uh, the other day, and I have 19,500 civilian flying hours and uh, a little over 2,000 military. So I'm up around 21,500 total time right now, and I would be starting in that entry level position. Now, they, uh, they'd Nick, like why to don't hire you, tell us, you, I'm sure, though. Pardon me? Well, oh, they'd, yeah. They'd they'd love, hire you. Yeah, absolutely. I think they'd love the experience, of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nick, I know that's a little bit different uh, over where you operate. Well, not in our airline. In our airline, we do exactly the same. We have a strict seniority system. Regardless of your past experience, you will come in at the bottom and have to work your way up to a command. Uh, you might, your command might be hastened slightly because we have an hours requirement. So there may be junior first officers who don't have enough hours, and you may rise through them to get a a faster command, but you'll still have the same seniority number. Uh, so that is always um, centered on your base, uh, your date of joining. Um, most of the major airlines uh, in Europe run the same system, but there are some airlines you can go to in the world that will allow direct entry commands, but you're very unlikely to get that straight out of the military anyway because you don't have any previous captaincy experience in a civil airline. So you'd probably need to uh, get a um, a few hours in your belt, under your belt as a captain to start with, and then you could perhaps move to a bigger airline, better pay on a direct entry. But some of those airlines um, are perhaps, I'm trying to think of a polite way of putting it, are not the sort of airlines that the majority of us would want to necessarily go and work with. They may be new starts, uh, which means they may not have a lot of financial stability, or they may be in countries which um, you may not want to go to to work so you know that's that's the problem yes and as far as the transition from military to civilian piloting i think that nick would agree that it really depends on what kind of military flying experience you have if you're if you're flying the type of military airplanes that i flew uh, very much the equivalent of airliners in the military world when i flew the c-141 starlifter cargo aircraft 
it was a it was a crew and our operating procedures checklist discipline and all of that is very much almost a mirror image of what you experience in the uh, in the airline piloting world however if you're a fighter pilot or uh, some of the other mission uh, aircraft that they have uh, you might find the transition a little bit more difficult at least it'll be different from what you have been used to in your military career. What, what would you say, Nick? Yeah, I'd say there's a, quite a steep learning curve, just getting used to the style of flying and uh, you know the different ways that you have to operate in a civil airliner. Um, so you know, but it, good lord, if you've if you've managed to master the average fighter, you can certainly fly an airliner. They're they're I was going to say a piece of piss. Uh, they are extremely simple to fly uh, in comparison with uh, some airplanes. Um, so you, you know, your flying skills uh, won't be lacking. Uh, you just need to learn the methodology, learn the um, discipline on the flight deck. You need to learn the route systems and uh, how to get yourself through all the various problems you do when you fly through multiple countries um, and basically learn to be a civil pilot because the, the you know the state of mind and the skills required uh, are very different and even if you end up doing say helicopter flying in the military there are rotor transition programs as well so there's plenty of pilots helicopter pilots coming out of uh, the military having previously only done rotorcraft flying and going into fixed-wing um, airliner flying. Yeah, so for possible. sure. We've got a bunch in our airline, yeah. And please understand that uh, the airlines, at least most of them that I know of, really do appreciate um, the military background um, and experience and training that we get. And um, so that's you know not going to be, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, it's not going to hold you back. Hindrance. It's not going to hold you back. Yeah, a hindrance or a, or an obstacle or whatever to uh, to getting employed. Yeah. yeah. By the way, so, I just thought I'd mention that this here behind me is a picture of Captain Jeff in a mad dog cockpit. So you know, that's <laughs> the kind of job you're going to end up. The, the engine, engine room. Engine room. Engine yeah. room. Exactly right. I recognize that. Hey now. Hey now. That's where the coal goes in, right? You have that's, to that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You see those big wheels. See those big wheels on on above him, and you know, coming out of the wall. That's where we have the big the old steam? rats that run oh. and drive <laughs> those <laughs> wheels. They run absolutely like large, yeah. like rodents of unusual sizes. Yes, yeah, yeah. very big. But that's only during ground operations, though, Dana. Come on, <laughs> that's true. That's Tight true. Taxi. Well, okay. uh, but see, we have to put the oxygen mask on them so they continue to produce the same amount of power once we've got them up at cruise out to mm. <laughs> things i did not know learn something new so, every day is the is the signal coming from my end uh, kind of uh, getting flaky no yes yes you've, Got a yes you, you've no. skyped a few times okay because i just noticed that uh, in the midst of uh, nick's uh explanation or or uh conversation that it was uh it, it kind of hicked up a hiccuped a few times, so I'm sure it's my hotel bandwidth. So I do apologize for that. Um, we're going to cross our fingers though and uh, do plain tails next. I think that would be a good time to do that. What do you all think? Yeah. Are you flipping a coin, Dana, to see whether or not that that's a good idea? Or <laughs> I not? think it's a great idea. No, I just <laughs> okay. I just dropped uh, <laughs> dropped a coin. 
<laughs> okay. It just sounded like, yeah. Like, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. That, that special coin that was given to me, I actually have it in my hand. Oh, the challenge coin. Yes. From uh, Armando. Mm-hmm. Armando. So. All right. Um, I was playing with it. Sorry. Oh, by the way, if you happen to be um, out and about, let's say, Fombra, and you see a man named Armando, and uh, you somehow mention to him that you do not have your challenge coin on your person, uh, you should probably not tell them that because that means, of course, that you have to buy the round of drinks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right, mm-hmm. Dana? Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, I had I, my challenge coin with me. <laughs> well, guess what? I had to uh, fess up. And I didn't need to, but I felt obligated to tell it Armando. It was the honorable that, thing to do. That I didn't have mine either, and that the next one was on me. <laughs> anyway, nice. it was great seeing him, and uh, worth spending the money on his beer, for sure. Uh, all right, so I think now might be a good time for us to hear this week's episode, installment of Plain Tales, Handling the Big Jets. The old pilot's plane tales, handling the big jets. As a child, I remember leafing through the books in my father's study, and there were a few there that always caught my eye. But the one I looked at the most, but understood the least, was Handling the Big Jets by D.P. Davies. For my father's generation, handling the big jets was on many an airline pilot's bookshelves. Indeed, it used to be required reading for all BA trainee pilots. The technical exam posed by Cathay Pacific Airways was based almost entirely on the content of the book. The US Light Safety Foundation said of it, Informative and yet entertaining, it's a textbook on flying jet aircraft that offers an abundance of hows and whys that can only head to greater aviation safety. The RAF magazine said, Recommended to all who would extend or confirm their professional knowledge of the subject and could well be included in the libraries of all establishments concerned with teaching flying. If Alpa praised it thus, the best of its kind in the world, there is no book which bears so directly on the pilot's problems. David Davids was born in 1920 in South Wales and joined the Royal Navy in the war. He trained as a pilot and served an 818 Swordfish Squadron aboard HMS Unicorn. At the end of the war, he attended the Empire Test Pilot School and joined the Air Registration Board in 1949 as their chief test pilot. Up until his retirement, he carried out the British certification testing of most civil prototypes, including the world's first jet transport, the Comet. The types he flew ranged from ultralight aircraft to Concorde, as well as gliders and helicopters. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, received the OBE, the R.P. Allison Memorial Prize from the Royal Aeronautical Society, the Cumberbatch Trophy from the Guild of Air Pilots, the Dorothy Spicer Memorial Award, the Douglas Waitman Safety Award, the Founders Medal of the Air League and the Britannia Trophy to name just a few. He became a Master Air Pilot of the Guild and a Fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. At the time, he had flown flight trials on more individual types than anyone else in the world. 
Di Davies recalled some of his more notable certification adventures, and a great deal of what follows is taken directly from his own words, often pithy and direct to the point of rudeness. I would have loved to have met him in person. He had a lot to say about the 747, an aircraft that he truly admired. Having spent so many years arguing with Boeing over their aircraft, particularly the 707, and most particularly the 727, it was an enormous relief to me to be able to fly the 74 and conclude at the end that apart from one small point, it was the best aeroplane I had ever flown. I actually did an engine out takeoff at 825,000 pounds, which is the best part of 400 short tons. Once in the air, it flies like a bird. I talked about the 707, where in the worst cases, the rudder footloads could be up to 200, even 220 pounds. In the 747, the maximum possible force would be 70 pounds which is a piece of cake. Anyone can push 70 pounds. The aileron loads are light. You can work them comfortably with one hand, and the centering over small angles is immaculate. So the fact that you've got 400 tons strapped to you is of no consequence whatsoever. You simply fly the airplane, and you can fly it with enormous precision and with very gentle control forces. It is a joy to fly, and if you took a schoolboy of 16 who could ride a motorcycle, and if you had enough courage, you could put him in the left seat, and he would do a circuit and landing for you without any trouble at all. It's that easy. When I came back from the States and went about saying this, of course the airline pilots hated it, because they liked the world to believe that flying is a great art, and it's hard work, and people should value and trust the skill they put into flying. In the case of the 7-4, that simply isn't true. In the old days, when you went to a high Mach number in an old-fashioned aeroplane, you pitched down, which meant if you didn't look after the aeroplane, the more it pitches, the faster it goes, the higher is the Mach number and the deeper into trouble you go. The 7-4 has an enormously high maximum demonstrated Mach number. It's actually 0.98, and yet it's no problem. You got to 45,000 feet, stuff it down the hill, and take it all the way up to 0.98, and not much more, because if you did, you wouldn't do any damage, but you'd make the biggest bang over Seattle you ever heard in your life. It had masses of roll rate, it's still stable, you can pull G, you can do anything. You can't believe you're damn nice supersonic. In the 707, you could demonstrate 0.95 Mach number in it, but you couldn't do much when you got there. There was hardly any roll rate. It was buffeting itself to death. The elevator effectiveness had virtually gone to zero. It was a heap. One of the most controversial periods in Di Davis's career was when he tackled the certification of the Boeing 727. This is his story about the problems that that aircraft and other T-tailed aircraft faced. The first of those was the Trident, and halfway through the development they had trouble because the airplane wanted to pitch up at the stall, whereas the requirement was for it to pitch down. They eventually spent 12 months looking at the stall fixes, and there weren't any aerodynamic fixes. 
In the end they came to me and asked if they could use a stick pusher. They fitted a pusher and I went up to Hatfield to do some development flying. It worked perfectly well. Whenever we did it, it worked. And we ended up at the end of that program with a really violent stall. It was so violent that one wouldn't have dreamt of doing it with a conventional aeroplane. There was a wish to prove the device to its ultimate point. The most demanding stall is an accelerated stall where you go into a steep turn and pull the stick hard back. That's all you do, and in a big aeroplane it's a bit hairy, but the Trident behaved perfectly. As it came up to 1.8G, which is a hell of a load factor, the pusher pushed, and it was a super pusher. It just went smack, the stick went hard forwards, the aeroplane pitched hard down, and we recovered. Of the same test on the VC-10, he remarked, They put a horn in with it, so that when the stick push pushed, this horn blew. It was a very loud horn. The other thing about the VC-10 was the buffet. The buffet at the stall is astronomical. Gear down, full flaps, power on, steep turn to the left, pulling hard, and coincidentally, it also came out at 1.8G, and the pandemonium on the flight deck you couldn't believe. The stick shakers were going, the stick knockers were going, the horn went, and then the stick went bang. It was a tremendous stall, and when we recovered from it, I said, well, that's enough of that, and Trubs, the test pilot Brian Trumpshaw, said, I should bloody well think so. I've never seen a stall like that in my life before. The 111 was also suspected of having pitch up so bad, BAC went into it quite slowly. On one of the prototypes, which had a servo-tabbed elevator, they got into a super stall and, of course, it wouldn't recover. What's more, they had 17 or 18 people on board, which they shouldn't have had. The guys down the back did fire the escape hatch, but it came straight back on again, because by that time they were coming straight down, and of course they were all lost. On a military airplane you can pull the plug and eject, you can't on a civil airplane. You're supposed to get out of your seat, walk aft, open the escape hatch and jump out of the bottom of the airplane. Of course, that takes bloody ages to do. Of course, George Edwards was very good. He actually talked to Douglas, who were doing the DC-9, and told them all about it. The 727 was the first Boeing aeroplane with full-powered controls and three engines at the back. It had a pitch-up at the stall with aft C of G, which would have been fatal. It was later proved to be fatal because one aircraft in service was lost in a super stall. Somehow or other, the FAA and Boeing certified that aircraft between them. Some years later, I was talking to a very old and senior Boeing fellow, Dick Rousey. He said, it was a pity that you wouldn't accept the 727. I said, what do you mean? You've never offered it to us. He said... We know you would never accept it. It's got a pitch-up at the stall. I said, what the hell are you lot doing operating it, flying it and certificating it? He said, look now, don't go into that, but I'd like you to have a go at it one day. Dan Eyre wanted a 727-100, so we went over and we flew it. Test pilot Lou Wyke 
hell of a good guy. He said, there's not a hope in hell of you accepting this aeroplane. We've had two of the most hairy ass stalls you've ever seen in your life, but we got to go through the motions. When we get to the RFCG stall, we go up to the incidence limit and then push and recover. By that time, you tell us if you've seen any quality which will warn you that you are coming up to a stall. We set the aeroplane up, trimmed it, and I started coming back to the stall, watching the incidents go up. And the aeroplane did nothing. Most aeroplanes will buff it, but with the flaps out it did nothing. It was smooth. There was no flow breakaway on the wing at all, but the incidents went up and up, and the pull force disappeared, and the stick went back to the middle. Then it started to pitch up, and I had to push gently. It wasn't a violent pitch up, but it started to rise, and I had to push and push and push until the stick was halfway forward. And as I got to that point, we came to the incidence limit. I looked at Lou, and he looked at me, and he was deadpan. He didn't say or do anything, and we recovered. We climbed back up, and he said, What do you think? Well, I said, There's nothing there, Lou. I mean nothing. The machine is quite desperately unstable. I know, he said. I know all this. We finished the program, and we simply couldn't go beyond the magic limit. We told Boeing, who said, OK, we'll fit a pusher. It took him about eight months, and, you know, it was the best stick pusher I've ever flown. Much simpler than our systems, fully duplicated. It did everything it should have and recovered the aeroplane. The rest was a gift. It was one of the nicest aeroplanes I've ever flown. You see, when Boeing finally took a deep breath and decided to do something, they did it well, although it stuck in their craw a bit, because they were only doing it for the UK, and they weren't doing it for the States. The twist in the story is this little bit. There was a 200 series that Dan Air also wanted to operate. It had a pusher on it, the development aircraft that is, and it was perfect. The addendum to this story was that despite having lost a 727 to a superstall at 13 million total 727 hours, which came well below the 100 million hours requirement for an accident due to a single cause, the CAA Airworthiness Board did not agree with Davis's recommendation for a stick pusher for British registration. The aircraft went into service without a pusher, and in addition, it was subsequently removed from the 100 series aircraft. In Davis's own words, I wrote to London and said that our council are going to certify this aeroplane without the pusher, and I'm telling you, it shouldn't be done, because it doesn't meet the requirements. It doesn't meet the American requirements. It's got a fatal stall characteristic at RC of G. But they put it all aside. Since then, these people must have been walking around with their fingers crossed, hoping that no British registered 7-2 would ever go in due to a stall. Now, if a 7-2 does ever go in with an RFC Aegean with a boatload of passengers, there will be the biggest bloody row you've ever heard of. Concorde was an aircraft that Di Davies had a lot of time for. When I come to Concorde, he said, 
I would like to talk for several hours, but it was so good, was so easy and had so few snags that there's hardly anything for a certification pilot to say about it. The prototype had a metal visor, so after you took off and pulled up the nose and then pulled the visor up, it was all steel and blocked the forward view. That wasn't a problem for the pilot, as you can operate an aircraft at night in cloud for the whole flight, just being able to see for takeoff and landing. We were prepared to certificate it like that. But the Americans said no fear. We're not having an aeroplane without forward vision, and they won the day. So the glass manufacturers had to go back to the drawing board and make glass that could sustain Mach 2, and they did it. The engine-out failures were a gift. The two-engine-out landings were a gift. There's bags of thrust left to make a proper landing. The engine failure at Mach 2 was a non-event. But better than that, the double-engine failure on one side the machine would tolerate without any problem. Now, the supersonic bomber, the Hustler, with a basic delta, if you lost an engine at Mach 2, that aeroplane dissolved into a cloud of dust. It couldn't handle the yaw. The funny thing about Concorde was the visual picture on the landing. You can get very low on the approach. I did with Trubbs. He sat there and let it happen at Fairford, laughing his head off. Because of the way you sit up, you think, hell's teeth are miles too high. What you had to do was have the courage to keep it up, and then it would come down like a lift. Once you've been shown it, it was okay. They had a problem making hard landings. A guy called Frankie, who made a landing in the Azores at 10 feet per second, at 11 feet per second the gear would have broken. My view was that he was a bit split-arsed, old Frankie. He did awful things making very show-off approaches, which he shouldn't have done, and of course he nearly cocked it up. It was the British test pilot John Cochran who discovered how to do it. At 50 feet, you just leave the stick alone and you get hold of the throttles and just shuffle them shut. Takes about two or three seconds. The next thing you know, rumble, rumble, rumble. One of his assistant test pilots remembers Davis's wonderful command of English, which made it a pleasure to be told off by him. He would often say little until the end, when he would sum up the key points in a few words. His engagingly Welsh-accented aphorisms included, Do not believe, prove it for yourself. Do not ignore the feeling in your bones. Stand by the technical truth, however great the political or commercial pressures. And most remembered by his friends... Flock chi non facio vera pre ceteris. I don't give a fig. Truth above all. He died in 2003, aged 83. Wow, what a great plain tale, Captain Nick. Um, that book sounds fascinating. It sounds like I might have to get uh, my hands on that thing and it's read it. It's not on your bookshelf? No. What? Well, it's it's hard to find. It hasn't been in print for a while now, so uh, you're going to have to dig around uh, sort of old aviation bookstores, I think. Uh, uh, the third edition, the one I'm holding up here, is the one I have, and I treasure it. Um, I got it uh, a few years before I left the Air Force. Um, 
and it cost me £13 back in those days. So, uh, But it is uh, worth its weight in gold, uh, not just now as a, uh, a slightly uh, historic view of what it was considered to be like converting from uh, prop-driven airplanes to the your first big jet. Um, that was really what it, it was um, designed for to to help people in that transition. Um, but uh, he, by the third edition, uh, he had obviously moved on to uh, the biggest of the big jets, uh, the seven four and Concorde. But uh, that's more or less the last one he wrote. But I thought the interviews I found, uh, which I believe you should be able to listen to if you're interested in uh, listening to the full set of interviews, uh, are on the um, Royal Aeronautical Society website. They have a series of interviews from all sorts of people. So just look for uh, uh, David uh, Davies, um, so DP Davies, and uh, you'll find some there. But he was a real character when you listen to him talk. He was a uh, he did not <laughs> did not take any prisoners. He did not stand for any fools, and he had very definite ideas about the right and wrong about uh, what an aircraft should be able to do before he would be willing to allow it to come onto the UK register. And he did not have a very high opinion of um, the FAA's attempts to certify various aircraft. So that's, um, that's all quite interesting, if a bit uh, controversial. I can get it on Amazon right now. Yep. Well done. 1995. Well, that's oh, if you cool. want to rent it. Well, no, you can buy it used for 1995. U.S. dollars. Oh, well, I'd see. Oh. Okay. Either way. Cool. Good. All I'm right. glad there are still is, some copies. There's there. some copies floating around, apparently. And uh, apparently he wasn't afraid to express his opinion, then, you're saying, right? Absolutely not. No, he said yeah. some quite damning things. <laughs> he, he had some very nice things to say about the 727. That was nice. Uh, yes, he did. He, he didn't like uh, the way that uh, it stalled with an RCFG, but he mm. loved the airplane uh, once they put a stick pusher in it. But I suspect yep. uh, that that wasn't for the American version, and uh, it was eventually taken out of the UK version. So I think that's what upset him a lot. Yeah, well, the uh, I flew the two hundred, and uh, all of our two hundreds had the stick pushers. Did they? I mean, yeah. that's interesting because I didn't realize that uh, someone had eventually decided it was a good idea. Yeah, oh, ab- absolutely. I think every every transport category airplane I've flown has a stick pusher. Interesting. All right. Well, that's that's great. Someone's uh, he, obviously his uh, opinions might have carried some weight after all. Yeah. Mind you, there there was a quite a serious 727 accident. Uh, I think uh, the guys uh, forgot to put the pitot heats on, lost airspeed indication, and in the same way that the Air France pilots did, they uh, pitched the airplane to a very steep attitude, uh, trying to control the speed without realizing that it was an erroneous airspeed indicator, stalled it, and then got into a super stall and went in. Uh, I don't think a big thing was made of it because they were just the two guys positioning the flight or three guys. Um, no, no oh, I think on. not. I think the one, maybe this is a different one, but oh, the okay. one that I thought you were referring to had a sports team on, I think it was a hockey team or something oh, really? uh, or oh, a okay. football well, team. I don't he know. He didn't give the specifics of it. I, when he said he, he, he mentioned that he thought the aircraft was just being positioned, but, uh, it sounds like yeah. if that sounds like a similar series of events, then that would probably be the accident. Yeah, I'm just going to do a quick uh, search. Uh, 727 pedo heat 
crash. I think it was in uh, somewhere in New York State too, where it crashed. Oh, wow. Um, let's see. The first the, was the fatal crash of a Boeing seven twenty seven on December first, nineteen seventy four. Uh, Northwest Airlines Flight 6231. It crashed in Harriman State Park near Stony Point, New York. Um, had been chartered to pick up the Baltimore Colts professional football team in Buffalo. Oh, so I think maybe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, for some reason, had associated the fact that uh, the, the charter flight and the football and the whole thing but they were actually on board the aircraft, but apparently not. Okay. All right. Three crew members on board. Yep. There, there it is. 1974. Wow. By the way, uh, for those uh, who are patrons, they will uh, have heard um, quite a bit more about uh, DP Davis and his stories, including his flying of the V British V bombers um, and uh, his opinions of very, various other riding that plane tail than I could fit into uh, the time period. So, um, you know, sometimes it's worth uh, considering becoming a Patreon uh, of the show because you get those little extras. And I always try and feed something in if I've got a bit left over from uh, the plane tail. So you've got a bit extra, a bit special. As we said, you'll be glad you did. And so will we. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, very good. Um, Let's see, moving on with uh, our feedback folder, uh, we have about an hour left in the show, maybe a little bit less, so we're going to try to knock out as many as we can today. Uh, Ralph sent in, Ralph Walker sent in this, maybe your technical experts can explain how a radial engine is a jet. I think this might be a new geared turbofan. <laughs> Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. The sun is usually such a reliable source, he says. <laughs> I think that he's saying that tongue in cheek, maybe? And, uh, of course, he's talking about that crash that we have talked about on a, a couple of the previous episodes, the uh, South Africa uh, Convair 340 crash. And, uh, obviously, it's not even a turbo prop. It's It was a piston-powered, radial uh, engine-powered. Don't those pistons have carburetors? And don't those carburetors have jets? Oh, there you go. That must be why the journalists. I mean, the journal- jet. journalist is just so smart. To know all of that. <laughs> yeah. To distill that down for us, for the, the public. Yeah, they're um, ruining our accuracy, accuracy rating. <laughs> no, no, we're correcting theirs. So I think that gives us okay, extra. Right. Double points for that. Double yeah. points. Okay. I agree. Bonus accuracy. Perfect. Ours is going up. That's what she said. Excellent. All right. Uh, next one is Texas Charlie and he says, guys and gal, does this have any basis in reality? And he sends us a facebook.com video, Texas Charlie did. And, uh, did you have a chance to any of you look at this video? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. (laughs) Okay. Well, I looked at it and I'm thinking to myself, is this, maybe this is a joke. I mean, the the way that the guy is is the captain is manipulating this uh control yoke is almost i i mean you know oh yeah he's like i'm watching it now he's like doing all it just looks ridiculous to me and i'm thinking that i don't know someone in the background is saying a little right a little left a little right (laughs) i think that's what and he's wearing apple earphones yeah yeah and he's kind of bowing and see how how much his hands are moving that's not 
What's that? It's not typical of a Boeing. Yeah, especially it looks like a 777 to me. Um, and that would be fly-by-wire controlled with the conventional, I don't know. I, huh. I'm i not sure what to say about that one, Texas Charlie. That doesn't, it almost looks not real to me. Oh, I, I, I personally think it is real. Really? Yeah, think, Maybe he's just over controlling it. I have flown. I'm sure that we've all flown with guys. I don't know whether it's a good technique or whether it's particularly gusty, but uh, he does seem to be working very hard. I sometimes fly with guys, and Dana, you probably know what I'm going to say, that especially when you get down like 50 feet and below, they really start overworking the controls. And you can actually feel the inputs that they're making, and it feels like you're in incredible turbulence. And then they, they somehow manage to get the thing down on the ground without pranging it on. And then they're standing in the door and everybody's praising them on how what, a, what an amazing landing that was. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, yeah, it, no, it wasn't. I mean, it, there, it was like perfectly smooth. There was no reason for they're that They're doing it for the glory, Jeff, for the, <sighs> the praise. It just makes me so upset when they do that and think, no, I mean, it was. Meanwhile, it, you're landing where everything is totally smooth. And, and then you prang it on. And you prang That's it on and then you get all the dirty looks out the door. Yeah, yep. and then you get the people in your Baby close Charlotte, huh? community of people yeah. uh, giving you a bad time about it. <sighs> anyway. I don't know. I mean, the fact they had the earplug, you know, the uh, Apple headset in, I don't think that is very telling on it. But I, th- I think if you look at the actual runway and the way it looks, it doesn't look fake. No, it doesn't. I mean, the video itself looks realistic. I'm not yeah. sure why he's wearing yeah. Apple headphones. Yeah, and and... But I just think with the Boeing, you wouldn't need to move the controls that much. I mean, that almost looks like an 88 movement. He's moving them so much, Jenna. I don't think anything's actually happening to the airplane because he's not letting the control input (laughs) sit for any length of time at all. As soon as he puts the control input in, he's reversing it. So all the control servers will be flapping around like it's going out of fashion, but the airplane won't really change its attitude much. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's good. That's a good observation, Nick. Very good observation. All right. So Texas Charlie, I guess the uh, verdict is, yeah, it's real, and there's no really, uh, there's no real good reason for him to be activating the controls that violently. Okay. Uh, continuing on, Scott. Uh, hello, APG crew. A O P A. Airline uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association mm-hmm. has a thing called Never Again. I was wondering if any one of y'all have a story like that. My story is that I'm an, a VFR pilot and learned that air traffic controllers are a big help. I was on a flight from Kennesaw, Georgia to Elizabethtown, Kentucky when the weather was to be clear at the time I was to arrive. We all know that the weather people are never wrong. Just kidding. Kind of. Anyway, I was about 40 to 50 miles out, found myself stuck on top. The ATC guys found an airport about 50 miles or so behind me that was reporting clear. So I turned around and went there, landed safely with just under an hour of fuel left. Not a big deal, but yet it could have been worse if I had planned tighter on fuel. Lesson here is to get my IFR rating before going that far on top. Great show. I've been listening to your podcast so long. I don't remember what number it was, but you were doing it solo. Keep up the good work. By the way, congratulations, Captain Dana. Thanks, mm-hmm. Scott. And Thank that you. Was Scott Willis. And uh, yeah, so uh, do you have a never again story that you're willing to share? 
Uh, I think that's everyone's, the big question. I think everyone's got we all have some. I wouldn't say just <laughs> one, maybe some. I've never done anything wrong never, and never I anything think we that move I would, on. you know. No. <laughs> do again. I you know, I think some of them come with you know, just like Scott was saying, there are things that you learn by experience. There's things that you learn from a textbook and then there's things that you learn from experience, right? And things that you know in your mind um to be legal or to be safe. But until you find yourself in that position and have to figure out how to get out of it in a safe manner, um, that's where the learning comes in. And that's when you realize, I probably don't want to do that again. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we've we've all been there a, perhaps a time or two. Yep. Yeah. Um, if you've been flying as long as Nick and I have and Dana um, and, and stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you you're going to have at least one or more, sometimes many more stories that uh perhaps scott when we're sitting at a bar some night after a few drinks maybe we'll talk about <laughs> it, it, probably not a good old, idea there is the old saying there are those that have and there are uh, those that will there are those that will exactly correct that is so true but, so true but you know i think and there, you there are the, your story here is a good example of the right thing to do uh, you know, when you find yourself in a situation, confess that and get the help that you need. And they were able to guide you to safety with plenty of fuel left and uh, all's well that ends well. And there are also old pilots and bold pilots, but very few old, bold pilots. So another mm -hmm. good saying. Another, another true statement. <laughs> and what's, what's one of my favorites is that uh, I, I used to have a plaque that had this on there that said that... Uh, you know, the people that think they know everything about aviation really piss off those of us who do. <laughs> That's a good one. I hadn't heard that one before, Jeff. All right. Let's, shall we move on to uh, yeah, none, none of us are willing to incriminate ourselves, I can tell. <laughs> no. Actually, I think if you listen back far enough, you may have heard some of my... Uh, I mean, none of them are... Yeah. None of them are anything crazy but just things that i probably wouldn't do again or you know with um hindsight looking back on would have planned differently so yeah yeah i guess maybe that i have so many of those stories that i just don't know which one to choose to to, to share well, i'll so. tell a very quick one though. oh yeah and i can tell a quick okay. one too just but go ahead okay so uh i'm on exercise uh in a three tank phantom so we've got the maximum fuel on board and uh, we're scrambled after an inbound raid that's uh, coming towards the east coast of Scotland because uh, it's an exercise and they're the enemy. And we go roaring off in full burner to meet these guys uh, as quickly as we can. They're low level over the ocean, pick them up, and uh, we shoot one of them head on. It's a four ship of F-111s, Aardvarks, uh, there, so they use. You bag around the back. You haven't got a very high G uh, turn you can do because of the G limits of uh, three tanks on the aircraft, and we're not throwing them into the sea. This is war. So uh, I get in behind, and we're several miles behind. I've got to close up to about a mile uh, to be able to use the sidewinders, uh, and they're sitting very low. We couldn't use the radar missiles. So um, we, I'm in full burner, coming uh, chasing them up, and uh, the aircraft's just eating fuel like it's going out of fashion. And I get up to the behind the uh, rearmost guy at a mile, shoot him, and I sidestep past him, trying to get up to the front pair. And uh, I can 
see the coast ahead. My navigator's calling the range of these uh, aircraft, and I'm assuming they're attacking Lucas. The fuel's going down, the fuel going down, and I shoot the left hand of the front guy, and I'm coming across to take out the right-hand one, and the low fuel lights come on. So I think, ah, oh, damn, I'm going to have to give this up. So I pulled out a burner and hoofed up to altitude and looked at the coast uh, to see the airfield because I'm thinking, well, I'm only about 10 or 15 miles from the coast now. I can just more or less glide in. And it's a piece of coast I'd never seen before, or at least I certainly didn't recognize. And I went, oh, my God, where, <laughs> where are we? So I've been chasing these guys, assuming they're attacking our airfield. They'd actually been going well to the south. And I looked up and went, oh, my God, and the TACAN, the Tactical Air Navigation Beacon, a bit like a VORD ME, but we had for military aircraft, locked onto the Lucas TACAN, and it was 52 miles away. And I went, oh, my God, we're not going to get there because I'm looking at the fuel, and it's, it's, the needles are almost rested on the bottom. Anyway, I said to Tony, we'll have to go Edinburgh. That's closer. And he said, don't bother. It's just as far away from the angle we were between the two airfields. So I just went into complete cold sweat panic mode. And um, we dribbled our way back. And I'm just, I could just hardly take my eyes off the fuel gauges as they're kind of bouncing on zero. And uh, there was a simulated missile engagement zone around the airfield. I came onto air traffic. I said, I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing the normal um, ADIS approach, which is a straight in from 10 miles. I'm coming from the south. I'm just going to join base and do turn directly on finals. So I did exactly that, and I just came – basically turned – pointed straight at the end of the runway, the coast, closest bit of tarmac, dirted the airplane up at the last possible moment, cranked it around the corner, and stuffed it on the ground with a huge sigh of relief. And when we got in, the engineers refueled the airplane and their eyebrows were just going higher and higher and higher with the amount of fuel they were putting on. Um, and it was just a huge learning lesson for me. Uh, all the boss wanted to know was why I'd been shot down because our own rapier missile guys had decided that because I wasn't following the safe lane into the air, airfield, uh, they'd engaged me uh, and they apparently shot me down. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. And all my backseater, who was a much more senior and hairy old navigator, he said, Well, you're not going to do that again, are you? And I went, No, <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. My story's not nearly well, exciting. I don't need to tell it. So. <laughs> it doesn't involve shooting no, airplanes no, down and running out of fuel? Not at all. Oh. No. Well, tell it All anyway. Right. Well, the, so. I'll give the the Cliff Notes version of it, the very abbreviated version. But basically, it was one of my very first uh, kind of longish planned cross country flights right after I had received my uh, private pilot certificate, um, and I was planning it from the eastern part of North Carolina to the western part of North Carolina um, in a one seventy two, and I was pretty meticulous about it because it was the first time I was going quite that distance, um, basically solo by myself. Um, not not solo in the aircraft, certainly, but, you know, a relatively long cross-country flight. So I looked at weather, fuel planning, everything that you need to do for, for a safe flight. And everything looked good to go. And, of course, the day arrived. And I forget exactly what delayed me initially, but there was something beyond my control that caused me to get a little bit later start in the day than I had planned. And still everything looked okay. Got the airplane packed up, got up in the air. Uh, you know, doing my thing with flight following and started crossing the state, got 
about halfway across the state and realized that the weather was not as forecast, much like Scott found in his um, scenario where the uh, ceilings were lower than forecast. So that forced me to be a little bit lower than I had planned to be. I was planning to fly basically into the mountainous region of Western North Carolina. And because I had left later and because the weather was not as forecast, I was not as high as I wanted to be. Still safe for clearing uh, the terrain, but still not as high as I wanted to be, but given my level of familiarity with the area. And also because I left later and there were also stronger than forecast headwinds, I was not making as good of time as I had planned. So it became dark before I got to my destination. So now I'm flying over mountainous terrain that I'm not terribly familiar with from the air in the dark with, you know, cloud layer above me. And now I can't tell exactly how high above me it is. Um, so that was just one of those things where, you know, in hindsight, knowing it was going to be like that or turn out like that, I may have not continued the journey as far as I did. But it turned out fine. And I actually had great help from air traffic controllers in that instance as well. So never again. Did you have an instrument ready at that point? Steph? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. it was, uh, you know, I actually, you know, when talking to the uh, controllers with flight following, one of them did ask if I was familiar with the terrain. And I said, no, I said from the ground. Yes. From the air. No, <laughs> but, but now we had plenty of, uh, plenty of clearance for both terrain and weather. It was just being a, a lowish time private pilot, uh, perhaps a little bit beyond my comfort level at the time. I think now I would not be, nearly as concerned about, especially not having an instrument rating and everything else. But um, yeah, at the time, it just, it was a learning experience, you know, where everything can kind of, it's all the little things that add up to get you to a point where you didn't anticipate you were going to be, basically. You know, I thought I was going to be well on the ground before, before sunset, not have nearly the type of weather I had to contend with. And it just, it didn't pan out the way it was planned. Exactly. But I didn't know what, no one shot me down at the end of the day. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) And and you still had fuel still, in your tank. Still tanks. had plenty of fuel, actually. Yeah, that part did yeah. work out as planned. Well, that's good. Yeah. Oh well, Dana, do you want to share anything, or are you going to be like me, and we're just going to shut I, up, move on? Yeah, I mean, my compared okay. to that, I've got <laughs> yeah. a, I've got a few stories, but I'm sure you do. I'm just going to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Texas Charlie, thanks again for, I think it was uh, Texas Charlie that sent that piece of feedback in, right? Uh, Scott. 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 Oh, Scott. Scott. I'm sorry, Scott. My bad. Uh, Scott, hopefully uh, that that uh, was um, some help. Yeah, well, not help, but I hope that we uh, answered sort of your question about the uh, never again. And I agree. That's one of the uh, most engaging parts of the AOPA uh, magazine, uh, those kind of uh, columns. I think Flying Magazine has something like that as well. I forgot what the title of that column is, but it's always one of the best ones to read when you somebody you know, tells you a story. That well, they're good to read, you know, especially when they have uh, certainly when they have good outcomes. But they're good to read yeah. because you want to know how people got to those good outcomes in case you find yourself in a similar situation. So I don't think there's any you know harm in sharing it as long as uh, you know. For the most part, I think stories that are being shared, everything is legal. It's just a situation you didn't really want to be in. And how did you mm-hmm. how did you deal with it? How did you contend with it? And what would you do differently in the future to avoid it? And what is the saying? I'd rather learn from somebody else's mistakes Absolutely. than my own. Yep. yep. All right. Well, I love that picture in the background of Nick's. Uh, start talking, Nick. Hello. 
Yes, it's uh, Mustache Lovers <laughs> Incorporated. Yes. It's, it's, That's it's the, Jeff rocking the cradle. <laughs> uh, the lovely Barbara Parrish. I was just sneaking a kiss in for the photo. She's just left the uh, chat room, which is a shame. Yeah, it's a shame. <laughs> Maybe she spotted it and then decided, I better get out of here. <laughs> yeah, Time to go. Very sensible. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to skip to 13. Uh, we have some audio feedback from Miss Josine. She says, hey, Jeff, behold my second feedback. That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) It's about quality of life. For context, the pilots being interviewed were working in the the United States and in the UK in the early 2000s. And it looks like the author struggled to find participants at the higher end of the pay scale. So it presents a pretty bleak picture. I didn't explicitly ask these questions in the feedback, mea culpa. But the main things I'm curious about are... Uh, a, how relatable are these stories to your own experience? Well, you know what? I'm not going to read her questions yet. I'm going to let her do her her uh, audio feedback, and then we'll read her questions. That'll make more sense, I think. So take it away. Go see. Hello, my beautiful pilots. The dog days of summer are in full swing. Why do we say that? Dog days. Well, Jeff asked me last night when I'm going to do some French stuff again. So let me shoehorn a little digression. The French word for heat wave is canicule. And the origin of that word is canicula, which is Latin for puppy. Relatedly, you have canis, Latin for dog. So that tells you at least that it's a very old expression. I looked it up, of course. It's astronomy my least favorite science. The dog star, Sirius, rises right before late summer. Naturally, the ancients reasoned that it was the cause of all that unpleasant weather that characterizes the season. Anyway, it's hot, it's humid, yet it never rains. And the impending collapse of society that these extremes pretend are still 30 years away, and so we relax and soak up the sun, enjoy drinks on the patio with the ones we love. Some of you are flying a lot more so that other people can have a good time. In French, we say, profiter du soleil, profit from the sun, but really take advantage of the sun while it's here. Not me, though. I prefer the air-conditioned confines, the flickering fluorescent glow of academic libraries, hours of solitary rapture weaving through the stacks, adding to my vast array of useless knowledge. Yeah, I'm fun at parties. It was there that I found something to entertain you, hopefully. Items from a book by the name of a Sociology of Commercial Flight Crew, written by Simon A. Bennett in the year 2006. Sociology is the study of society, and thus, a sociology of airline pilots might attempt to answer questions like, what types of people become airline pilots? What values and beliefs do those people have? How do those values affect the work they do, for good or for worse? You get the idea. 
It was questions like these, actually, that brought me here. I remember reading somewhere that pilots were likelier than average to be Catholic and curious about why that might be and whether it might mean anything. I googled Catholic pilot, something like that. And uh, your show is what popped up in like page three or four of results. So for my feedback today, I'm going to share some items from this book on sociology of commercial airline pilots, specifically for today, related to the theme of family and quality of life. I'll start with a little amuse-bouche, a morsel I came across in the appendix in the back of the book. A pilot being interviewed, he was trying to get his wife pregnant, but his rosters were so demanding that they couldn't conceive for many months because his schedule kept him away from home each time that his wife was ovulating. So the first thought that comes to my mind is, you can't trade shifts? Um, and do you um, ever talk to uh, crew scheduling to uh, attend to those sorts of um, delicate matters? Um, my second thing that comes to my mind is, um, I always thought that you could freeze sperm and just use it later. Perhaps that's what the chief pilot told him, unsympathetic to his woes. Okay, the next item is from an interview with another pilot, once again on the topic of career versus family. And I quote, People do become serial husbands. Apparently, there was an ex-British Airways Concorde captain who ended up flying small turboprops for City Express because that was all he could get. He was in his 60s and all he had in life was a 23-year-old girlfriend, a one-bedroom flat in Crawley, and a Ford Escort diesel van because all the money, of course, had gone on every other wife and girlfriend. What a schlamozzle. There's your Yiddish word for the day. It means a person who is perpetually unlucky. So I can provide a little more context to this statement. I looked into it a bit. Um, hopefully I'm above 50% accuracy. I, so first off, I figured out that this guy was flying a Dash 8. And it mentions he was living in Crawley, which is where Gatwick Airport is, working for City Express, an airline that only existed from 2002 to 2006. I'll get a little bit more into that later. I looked at air traffic in and out of Gatwick during that period. Not very many Dash 8s, practically none from that airline. In other words, Gatwick was not his base. In other words, he was commuting. More detective work. This airline, City Express, it was a subsidiary of British Airways, 
established in 2002 out of the merger of multiple regional airlines purchased by BA in the 1990s, which probably was not the um, happiest atmosphere. Anyway, in 2006, they attempted to adapt into a low-cost carrier model like EasyJet, uh, changing their name to BA Connect, or BACON for short. However, it was not terribly successful, and by the end of 2006, they had been purchased by Flybe. Now, considering that he was already in his 60s at the time, it's quite possible that this guy had retired and that none of the following applies. However, let's assume that he was still flying that year, 2006. What happens when the airline you work for gets bought out by another? You get seniority list integrations, you get relocations, you get the apparently rather dodgy provisions of what is known as a TUPE transfer or T-U-P-E uh, transfer in the UK. In other words, you get a flurry of jargon that equates to the following. You're 64, let's say, in the dotage of your flying career. You've come to terms with your fate. You like to see yourself as a fatherly presence to these young pilots, making up for the fact that your own children don't speak to you. You regale the line with body tales from your glory days on the Concorde. Deep down, you know they feel sorry for you, but you do your best not to think about it. Then one day, you get the news about the merger, and with it, a final humiliation to end your career on, a plunge in seniority that might force you into reserves, force you to relocate, or find yourself a cat crash pad. Defeated at last, you cash in your chips. There's this idea I hear expressed from time to time on this show that, as in war, a pilot's life is nothing more than periods of long boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And for that reason, that realistic stories about flying without the potential for carnage and smoldering wreckage couldn't possibly be interesting. Well, I think that you're selling yourself short. I'll admit it's easier to rely on plane crashes to supply the drama, but I think that a great novel could be written about a Concorde pilot so incompetent or so troublesome or so unlucky that he ended up downgraded to turboprop. But maybe, at long last, he finds true love in the arms of that 23-year-old. And to this day, in 2018, she visits him still, each morning, in his nursing home. Sometimes these things work out. I did have a third item on the topic of family life, but I'm already past 10 minutes, so I will save that for a future feedback. And for a future, future feedback, there is another excerpt in this book related to uh, safety and flight operations that I'd like to get your opinion about. Stay tuned. And yes, French, um, I will have a feedback for you about with more French words. 
that's that's it. Take care. Tailwinds and all that jazz. <laughs> Always enjoy feedback, uh, especially audio feedback from you, Josine. Um, and uh, thank you for the lesson about the, the dog days of summer. That's interesting. I did not know that. Nope. But apparently a lot of people did in our chat room. Yeah, I had never even just one of those expressions that I use and never even thought about it. Never yeah. wondered why. I always think of like a dog just laying down underneath the porch or something yeah, like or that. Yeah, where it's just, just like stay hot and, you know, they're yeah. just kind of lethargic. Had nothing to do, uh, knew, uh, knew nothing about the fact that it was associated with astronomy. Nope. I, I can help out a little bit here, by the way. Um, the reason he would have left his fine airline and uh, flying Concords was almost certainly because uh, in the old days, BA uh, pilots had a contract that only ran to the age 55. Uh, legally, they were allowed to fly in the UK to 60, but not according to their contract. So you had to leave uh, BA at the age of 55, which would have given him five years struggling to find a job. And there aren't many airlines that would want to take on um, uh, an aged uh, captain for just a few years. Um, so he might have struggled to find uh, employment and uh, keep the money coming in to pay all the various alimonies. So I, I think I can probably explain that bit. I was going to, I, that was my hunch as well, Captain Nick. I, I thought maybe they had the same, you know, uh, 60 was the maximum retirement age for pilots uh, rule. And the fact that he was in his 60s meant to me that Obviously, he couldn't be flying the Concorde anymore for BA. Uh, if he was in his 60s, then uh, there was a rule for a while that uh, you could uh, work as a first officer in up to 65. Some of our captains did that, those that had you know extra marriages. Um, and it wasn't until quite recently have uh, you been allowed to hold a captaincy to 65. So How do you ones, get those extra marriages? So the ones who, who were, you know... <laughs> who stayed with one marriage or maybe never married throughout their entire lives, they could comfortably retire at 55 with the salaries and pensions they'd earned. Oh, in, in BA the, for sure. Yeah. Yes. And particularly if you've been a Concorde pilot, cause they're on the biggest pay scales. So. I'd, I'd heard that, uh, the, the, uh, general financial advice given to me when I was first hired almost 30 years ago was, uh, stay with your first wife. Um, don't try to start your own business because it will fail. And, uh, don't, uh, or stay in your, uh, first officer's house. Don't, don't, uh, get a bigger house. How does house it go? One house, captain. one spouse, one something or other. Mouse. Mouse. One mouse. <laughs> one louse. I don't know. There's something, there's a, there's a third part to that, which I can't remember, but it's, yeah. it's a cute saying for financial stability. One house, one spouse. <laughs> this is why I will struggle with money my whole life. Cause I can't remember the third, <laughs> remember the third one. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah. If you want good financial advice from a pilot, whatever they tell you, do the do opposite. The opposite. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, okay. So going back to uh, Josine's feedback, she says, uh, how relatable are these stories to your own experiences as pilots? And, oh, the first part of it, he, she was talking about the, uh, the guy that was whining because he couldn't get his wife pregnant when she was, she, he couldn't be home when she was ovulating. And I'm thinking, uh, that sounds pretty lame to me. I mean, if there, if there's a will, there's a way. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many way. times. Isn't that a quote from like yeah. Jurassic Park? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, every single 
Christmas, ex- with the exception of one, since I've been flying for Acme Airlines. And most of that time, 19 years of that, I was not senior in the least bit. I was very junior. And, but I managed, because I had the will to make sure that I was going to be home for Christmas, uh, to, to make sure that that would happen. And you just had, you had to work hard to do it. But to me, it sounds like that was just an excuse that, uh, well, I couldn't get my schedule to be home when my like wife was ovulating. Yeah, I mean, uh, and there's yeah. absolutely no reason why your wife can't get pregnant, even if you can't get home while she's ovulating. It just won't be your child. Post off, postman, milkman. Well, mm, I could say so many things on that. I really could. I mean, on a a serious note, serious note, actually, when I when Julie and I were trying to, um, I was very junior. I had no control of my schedule, and most Christmases I've actually spent away from home. Um, So it really is relative where you sit in seniority as to whether you can control or not control your schedule enough and you know as everybody knows we don't have children that's part of, part of the reason um and then uh, we talked about the concord pilot uh what we think is the the real story behind all that and uh anything else to add to that no great Crew? feedback yeah good feedback yeah excellent thank you josine for that and uh, we're going to have some more audio feedback from one of our friends and community members, Stephen, and uh, he may have some some news for us. So take it away, sir. Hey, APG crew, Stephen Ivey, the pilot from West Georgia. Um, finally going to leave you some feedback on what I've been up to since the last time I actually updated you on um, surveying and everything, uh, which I think was way back in like February or March. Um, since then, I've uh, really been doing, you know, finishing the survey, flying out for that spring season. Um, got done with the spring season, um, about the second week of May, and, um, I went ahead and started applying to, uh, some airlines, um, about that time frame, because I was, uh, getting pretty close to hours, but I wasn't really there yet, but, you know, they say if you're in, uh, couple months of getting your hours go ahead and apply so you can um, get a class date and all that so I applied at um, a couple of different uh, regional airlines here in the United States Um, two of them called me back the day after I applied and uh, asked me to come interview so um, the week after I got done with uh, the survey spring season I spent the next week going out to uh, interviews for these two airlines. Um, the first one was a little strange. Um, this uh, Acme Junior Carrier, um, they're, they're a large one here in the States, and um, I went out to the interview, and I was expecting there to be a good many people because, oh, it's a pilot shortage, there should be lots of people interviewing for this job. And I get out there, and it turns out I'm the only person interviewing all day. So that was a little intimidating, um, but I felt like the interview went pretty well. Um, you know, mostly general questions about your uh, background, you know, how did you become a pilot, um, what's your experience flying, um, have you ever flown in a jet, any military experience, uh, things like that. 
um, which I haven't been in the military or have any jet experience. But anyway, um, so that interview went uh, pretty good. Um, and then I flew back home from that interview and then left the next day to go to another interview for a, um, I would say, a decently sized regional carrier as well here in the United States. Um, and uh, I was got up to where the interview was at and actually got a phone call from the people I interviewed with the day before offering me a job. So I uh, told them I'd get, let them know because I had one more interview with this company that I was uh, interviewing at, and I wanted to just see if I how I did with it. And they said, "Okay, just give us a call back." So the next day, I um, went into the second interview with another Acme Junior carrier, knowing I already had a job if I wanted it. So I tried not to let that, um, you know, play into my head too much. So I uh, got to this interview, and I was one of 20 people that day, so that made me feel a little bit better. Um, a lot of um, older, or I should say um, more experienced pilots were there, um, a lot of ex-military guys, and um, some guys that had actually been furloughed from some legacy carriers back in the day that had um, left the airline industry altogether and were trying to get back in. Um, that interview was a little bit different, um, just the way they did things and stuff, um, but uh, it went uh, really well, um, didn't have any issues with any of the questions they asked me or anything like that, and they actually offered me a position um, as soon as I finished the interview, and I told them I'd, l I'd let them know the next day I had another um, offer to consider. So I um, got back home. and. Um, after the flight back and everything, I decided I was going to go with my first choice. So I got offered a job to um, work at this Acme Junior Carrier flying a uh, CRJ. That's the uh, Canada Air Regional Jet, um, also known as the Bombardi, Bombardi A um, Regional Jet. Um, so I'll be flying either a 2, a 7, or a 9 since they've got all three. So I'll be... Um, um, flying one of those in the near future. Um, so after that, I uh, went back to the survey company because obviously I didn't have my 1500 hours. It was uh, about um, 300 short by um, the time May rolled around. So I had to do some more flying. Um, so this summer side, the summer season is a little bit different than our winter season. Um, they fly at a little bit lower of an altitude. Um, they fly at 1,500 feet AGL, taking the pictures and stuff. So that's that was a big change from being high up to being really low to the ground. Um, I also um, moved up to a 182, which is um, it's really not that much different than a 172. It's heavier, um, faster, um, lands a little bit differently. So. Um, Flew for that a little while, and then um, I got moved over to a um, 206, and it was a lot different than the 182 that I've been flying, just a little bit longer. Um, actually had to think about what you were doing when you were landing as far as planning out your speed, um, your decent and everything. Um, really solid airplane, though. Like, it landed really good. It's not like the 172 where it wants to sit there and float and doesn't want to land this thing. If you um, set it down, it's going to set itself down and land. So that was nice. Um, 
got to go to some places I'd already been, but uh, let's see. The summer season, I went to Nashville, Charleston, South Carolina, um, Rochester, New York, um, Portland, Maine, which I got to see the main man, Micah, while I was up there. It was really nice visiting with him. Um, oh, and I also um, saw Hillel while I was um, going from Charleston to Rochester and uh, had lunch with him one day while I was working. Um, let's see, from right, from Portland I went back to South Bend and swapped aircraft out. Got another 206 and then went to Albany, New York. And then Springfield, Massachusetts and Pro- Providence, Rhode Island. And that brought me up to about the... Um, last week of July and I um, hit my hours at that point so I crossed 1500 hours um, you know I'm not sure of the exact date it was so- sometime in July though um, that third week of July but I-, I officially hit 1500 hours then and uh, I went ahead and turned in my notice at the survey company and everything and I contacted the uh, at junior carrier I was going to work with and told them I was uh, ready to get a class date and everything so I am starting my training at Acme Junior um, this coming up weekend, um, and I'll be out there for about two months um, learning to fly the uh, CRJ. So um, that's going to be really exciting. Oh, and also, um, I'm sure that some of you um, might have seen pictures and stuff, but uh, I also was uh, able to go to Oshkosh this year. Got to see. Um, Glenn, Jennifer, um, Dispatcher Mike, Dave Abbey, Hello and his son, and then a lot of other uh, podcast people that were up there, and then um, some other APG fans that um, just stopped by and or pulled me aside and said, hey, because I was wearing an APG shirt. So that was a, a very fun experience. Um, I'll definitely have to do it again, um, hopefully next year if um, I get the time off and everything. But... Anyway, I just wanted to let you know uh, where I was at with everything, and um, hope everybody is doing well, and I'll uh, update y'all about my training, hopefully, in the near future. Take care. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, we've wondered how it was going with you. We knew you were um, doing the survey flying, uh, building up your hours, and we knew it was just going to be a matter of time before uh, you got on with a, a regional carrier, and I guess best thing we can do right now is just say muzzle tough all right and we hope to hear more about your career progression and uh, look forward to seeing you around the campus um i think he said he was going to be based in atlanta didn't he um dana i didn't hear we he never said in that feedback we think he is though i think he he shared that with me so uh that's fantastic i mean it's been a long road and doing some really boring flying a lot of it Mm -hmm. and they survey work but uh fantastic job and uh, Mm -hmm. well done with the interviews yes Uh, obviously he nailed them all and got offers from several companies and uh what's not which is nice what's not like what's not to like about steven he's a great kid great guy He's going to have a great career ahead of him. So really proud of him. Absolutely. And hoping uh, that he'll be senior enough to uh, bid his schedule so that he can attend Oshkosh next year when I think more of us from 
the APG will be there. And by next year, he'll be a captain, so. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> a junior captain. Probably, probably very yeah. true. <laughs> oh, well. Well, we'll see. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Please make sure that you continue to uh, keep us. Yeah, send us uh, more updates. This yeah. is, these are, you know, these are the uh, kind of things that people who listen to the show who want to be where you are now uh, would like to hear. Yeah. Just like Nick, you know, the guy that uh, at the beginning of the show where we had the audio feedback from Pure, uh, he's doing the same thing that Stephen was doing, you know, building up those hours at the uh, survey company. And uh, before you know it, I'm sure Nick will be sending us feedback just as Stephen did that he's got on with uh, <laughs> one of those out there. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Um, or was I not supposed to say what actual carrier he, uh, oh, well, I'll, Beep. I'll edit that in post. Beep. And Steph knows what that means. Yes. I, I, do. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Steven also sent us, no, that's a Steven from San Jose. There's like three different Stevens here in the feedback. Uh, and they're not, they're not the, the same. same Stevens. Steve. Oh, I misunderstood your note to me there, Steph. I thought you said that they were all, they were all Steven, uh, Steve, okay. Steven with a V and Steven PH. Gotcha. 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 Okay. Well then, um, let's get back or try to get back on track. Um, I believe eight was the one I left off with. Uh, Chris said uh, something about tray table troubles. A new one for me tonight is a frequent flyer flying home after a business trip. The passenger across the aisle from me in jet blue mint, which is spectacular, by the way, before pushback, told the flight attendant his tray table wasn't straight. He had it pulled out, and it was simply angled down on one side, but barely. I couldn't believe he was complaining, but to the flight attendant's credit, he said he'd have someone look at it. So I saw him go tell the captain, and sure enough, a maintenance person showed up a few minutes later. The tech wasn't able to fix it on the spot and walked toward the cockpit just as our departure time came and went. I leaned over and told the passenger, this is going to cause a delay. He looked at me and still seemed more worried about his barely tilted tray table than the 170 people who wanted to depart on time. I decided to get up and approach the crew and offer to sit in his seat. After all, I just wanted to to depart on time, and I've dealt with warped tray tables many times without a peep. The captain got out of the seat, approached me and said, Nope, sorry, we're going to have to take a delay. That egg is already cooked. Meaning, he had reported it, and policy apparently dictated that it needed to be fixed or made inoperative before departure. The crew and nearby passengers were visibly annoyed at this selfish passenger. We ended up leaving late after the decision was made to make the tray table in-op. So my question is this, is there really a need to delay a flight due to a slightly warped tray table that still stows just fine? Why couldn't the captain have come back sooner and talked some sense into this guy before calling maintenance? And what would you have done? Thanks as always for all the great APG awesomeness. Class Bravo Chris from Kilo Sierra, Quebec, Lima, private pilot. And that's an airport up near Palo Alto, I believe. SQL. It's somewhere on the in the Bay Area. Is it? I'll double check. I think so. I think we get, every time we see it. I'll here because I can't. Yeah. I think we got it. The last time I attempted to locate it, I think I put it somewhere in Utah. San but I Carlos, think Carlos, California. San Carlos. There we in go. In the Bay Area. You are correct. Yeah. Ding. Ding. Oh, where's my bell? Hang on. Hang on. I got to play the bell. Ding, ling, um, ling. Wow. No, that's not the bell. Hey. Uh, 
I'm trying to. There, there we go. go. <laughs> but it may see sometimes I press the keyboard uh, shortcuts, but if I don't have that window in focus, <laughs> it does something different. Change your glasses. So, no, I need to. Uh, I have the single vision glasses <laughs> right now, and I'm uh, and the stuff that's so close. This thing is so close to me that it's hard for me to read these uh, <laughs> these words. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's tough getting old. Ah, anyway, uh, so Captain Nick, yes, sir. Purser comes up and says, um, "This guy's got uh, some issue with his tray table. What do you want to do? You want to you want to call me? Ma- are you going to call maintenance and have them come out and take a look at it?" Uh, I usually go as long as it doesn't delay us. But uh, yeah. and, and I can have maintenance come on the airplane. They can go. It's fine. You can take it, and I don't have to put anything in the tank log. I don't have to decide whether it's in op or not uh but i'm not going to go down and look at his trade table for a start i'm way too busy at that point of the flight so uh, yeah. i just don't have time to leave it's the flight beneath your account. duties perfectly so honest. i do rely on the um on the cabin crew to a certain extent to say this is fixable this is not this is fine it's not really an op um and uh, or they could just go oh well We'll just give you a tray in your lap, uh, and we'll get it fixed on the next sector. Uh, it sounds to yeah. me like um, having called the maintenance out, they were slow turning up, they, uh, and the captain felt obliged to put something in the tech log about it, and so it was all going to take too long. So um, yeah, really and honestly, this is happening back in the cabin, and uh, this is dealt with, with the uh, cab- by the cabin crew. Uh, if they have an, a maintenance issue, then I usually try and, if it's close to departure time, I usually try and main, make sure it's absolutely essential before I actually get a maintenance guy out there. Because I know it's going to take 10 minutes for him to get to the airplane and 10 minutes for him to fix it minimum. And if I'm five minutes from pushing, I usually try and go, can we can we take it? Is there any way we can take it? Can we move him to another seat? And if another passenger is willing to sit in his seat, so wow, brilliant. <laughs> Fix. Right. Let's go. Unfortunately, the timing in this case was a little off. By yeah. the time he volunteered to do that, the as a, as he said, the, the egg was already cooked. Yeah. Um, meaning, and I'm sure that what he meant was, yes, what you're saying, Captain Nick. He, he had entered it into the tech log or the log. Yeah, I, I never write anything in the tech log until it's absolutely essential. I mean, particularly yep. on the way home, uh, there are some captains who will sit there and fill out the tech log before they land just so they save time when they're on the ground. No, never do that because <laughs> you might divert and then you've got all those entries which now you have to solve uh, usually, uh, because there's rarely maintenance people at a, at a diversion, certainly for in my kind of operation, um, right. you're going to have to fix all that. So never, I never write anything in the tech log until I'm actually a wheels on where I want to be. Yeah. And you understand the implications of what you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, you know, you write up, uh, you know, well, this is the last leg on this airplane and I'm about to go home anyway. And this armrest is just not quite right well what you don't realize when you write up something on the seat that is like basically a no-go item if they can't fix it then guess what then they got to replace the seat and then uh, chances are you have a flight canceled because of it uh, and i just want to tear my hair out when i see somebody do something like that yeah. what do you think dana oh i just had my seat i just had to write it up uh last trip as a matter of fact <laughs> <laughs> the darn thing wouldn't lock in the vertical position. Your seat. <laughs> That's why yes. Jeff has no hair. 
That's right. Yeah. I had, I had no choice. I mean, it was, it was truly a safety a flight issue because the, the right side of my is two locking mechanisms, one on the left side, one on the right side and the right side locking me- mechanism would not lock in height. So I only had the left locking mechanism holding the airplane. So they ended up just changing out the seat. Okay. I can't tell you how many times I've flown airplanes with the seat. Little, yeah, but you're about a half bit. my weight. Well, not quite. And you know, you're more than half your quite weight. skilled at uh, landing the aircraft. <laughs> if I banged it in, next thing I know, I'd be on the floor, thing breaking. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, there are there are things to write the to that are important with the seat, uh, but I mean, there are some other things that aren't really that important like the seat cover or you know right. or the cushion worn out or something like that and what and i'm not sure that everybody quite understands what you're doing when you enter that in the logbook yeah i mean you know the, there is there's there's arbitrary things that don't need to be put in the logbook uh, you know well let me rephrase that there are things that are uh that we sh- i don't want to put this so that we don't get yeah, in trouble don't, I, don't, I think maybe we just stop right there I think and, everyone uh, got the gist of. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it it's uh, you you've got to be legal and safe, and that's the most important yep. thing. And anything, anytime I look at something, I look at it is is it legal and is it safe? So, um, yep. and I always go by that. So as long as I'm mm-hmm. consistent with that, I can never get in trouble. I dot all my eyes and cross my t's. So yep. uh, that's my true answer to uh, the the question that was asked regarding duly recorded duly recorded this recorded. by chris so. <laughs> um the one of the last trips that i flew i was flying with this guy and he was just on his own putting stuff in the logbook or like write-ups and i'm going what are you doing dude stop um you know talk to me first before you like ask me if that's something that i want you to put in the logbook don't don't do it on your own yeah. unilaterally. I mean, that- in something like that, I mean, if you're, you, if you're in a, uh, outstation in an LED or, you know, one of those, those LED, not the LED, what's, what's it called? The, the light, yeah, those little pixels, pixel, pixel. Um, if a yeah. little pixel is burned out. All right. It just happened. It just saw, you know, a little pixel go out, you know, that's really not a safety of flight issue. It's really not technically a real big issue at all. Um, but you get somebody that's really adventurous and decides to put that in logbooking. You're in Columbia, South Carolina. Well, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I mean, it's not good luck. Yeah, good luck. So you know, you got to use great judgment on that. And and, uh, mm-hmm. um, and I I absolutely get what you're talking about. I mean, you as the captain, me now as the captain, anything that's going to go into that logbook, uh, we need to have a conversation before it goes into that logbook to see if it's something that is really in you know of utmost important that should be entered in the logbook i mean this this whole thing with the tray table that is actually a cabin discrepancy is completely different from anything Mm -hmm. that has anything to do with us so you know right that that's just a passenger convenience passenger comfort item you know it's not safety of flight yep exactly correct the passenger convenience item it's not a safety issue and there's a completely different uh book for that that the flight tends can write their stuff up on now, if this was a seat that happened to be in an exit row and the the, the table could not be stowed, right. then that's a safety of flight issue. You know, that's a legitimate thing. Correct. Um, but uh, anyway, Class Bravo Chris, um, I think that uh, we answered that pretty well. Um, you be the judge. <laughs> yeah, you be the judge of that. 
<laughs> okay. I think we're over our uh, our time. And uh, thank you for hanging in there with us. If you're still listening, <laughs> dear listener, um, for uh, joining us today on the uh, 335th episode of the Airline Pilot Go Show. And uh, we had a great time. I hope you uh, enjoyed listening to us. And if you want to learn more about the show, we have this very nice website uh, called the AirlinePilotGuy.com. And you can learn about the crew and the community and the coffee fund and so much more. And we also have apps for iPhones and Androids. And we're also on social media. You can head over to Twitter. Our handle there is at APG Crew. You can find our individual Twitter account information pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Interact with the community there. You can post longer things than you can post on Twitter if you're so inclined. If you like extra verbiage. And um, yeah, all kinds of great community interaction both places information about meetups and other important things related to the podcast find us there and i was hoping that um since i'm in baltimore where uh, hillel is located that he'd be able to do this in person but uh no he's out of town he heard i was coming (laughs) apg listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser on slack we share ideas and news we suggest episode and plain tales topics we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, and until next time, wishing all of you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. So long. Have a great time. Good day.